And remember when we pointed out for Sayyidina Ibrahim salam, the site of the house, yani the site of the Kaaba. And Allah Ta'ala said to Sayyidina Ibrahim salam, that do not associate anything with me as my partner and purify my house for those who make tawaf around it. And for those who stand, yani for those who do tawaf, for those who stand and do qiyam, Stand and worship for those who do ruku and for those who bow and worship and for those who do sujood, for those who prostrate and worship. Then and announce amongst the people announce the Hajj, the pilgrimage to the people, so that they will come to you on foot, on every lean mount, coming from every distant mountain pass, so that they may bear witness to the blessings they have and they can remember Allah's name on the specified days over the domestic animals that Allah has provided them. So eat from them, yani from those animals, and feed the distressed and the poor. Then they must remove their filth and clean themselves up, fulfill their vows, and then again make tawaf and circle around the Al-Bayt Al-Atiq, the ancient house. Alright, the Kaaba, as we mentioned last time, was originally constructed by the angels in the commandment of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And then Sayyidina Adam, when he came on earth, he reconstructed it. Then after the flood, Sayyidina Nuh constructed it. Then again, it had been abandoned and fallen. Then Sayyidina Ibrahim, Ibrahim constructed it with his son, Sayyidina Ismail salam. So here in this very first ayah, verse number 26, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is revealing and mentioning when he revealed the location of the Kaaba, the site upon which Sayyidina Ibrahim salam was supposed to build the Kaaba. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala then commanded Sayyidina Ibrahim salam that do not ascribe any partners, do not associate any partners to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. This was obviously not because Sayyidina Ibrahim Islam would ever dream of doing such a thing, but it was to mention the falsafa behind the construction of the Kaaba, that this house has been built before. You have to make a niyyah in your heart when you build the Kaaba, that this house will be used only and only for the worship of one Allah Taala for Tawheed. So although what Allah Taala is teaching us in this ayah, that although something may be well understood in a person's subconscious, Still, Allah SWT wants sometimes that we should consciously make a niyyah and the most important niyyah consciously that we should make in everything that we do is that we're doing everything purely for the sake of Allah SWT and for His pleasure. This is known as another type of tawheed in terms of our niyyah, tawheed al-matlab. And we should negate, even if we may never fathom doing such a thing, we should negate any and all possibility of doing shirk. Then to cleanse the house means that for those who are going to make tawaf, qiyam, ruku, and sujood, so here are the tawaf is the amal, as all of you know, the act of worship that is done specifically at the Kaaba and the Kaaba alone. Qiyam, ruku, and sujood refer to salah. 
and that refers this is also going to be a place of Salah because number one is going to be the Qibla of Salah and then there will always be people who live in Makkah Mukarramah who will gather there, it will be their masjid not only will they do Tawaf there but they will also pray Salah there and that is also being mentioned and revealed to Sayyidina Ibrahim salam that this is a place of Tawaf and a place of Salah and hence it must be pure and this is one reason why you would know that there are very few ibadat in which wudu is required. Tawaf is one of them and salah is the second one and tilawah to Quran and the Arabic is the third one. That's it. These are the only three ibadat for which wudu is required. So the place has to be pure. The people have to be pure. And as we mentioned last time, it has to be purified from kufr and shirk, has to be purified from physical impurities. And the place should be a place of purity where people bring purity of intention, purity of emotion, and purity of thought. Then Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, some have taken this qiyam not to refer to a position in prayer, and this was the translation we used yesterday, that qiyam means those who reside. Although the preferred translation interpretation is that it is referring to the three positions in prayer. If it is taken, the verb qiyam to mean those who reside there, again there can be two possibilities. Those who are permanent residents of Makkah Mukarramah or anyone who comes to Makkah Mukarramah for the greater or lesser pilgrimage, Hajj or Umrah. In that case then, and this is a very good example for you in tafsir, when multiple meanings are taken simultaneously, not only is it place that has to be purified for the people who make yam in their salah and stand in worship, but also for those who are residents, they must keep it pure for themselves, and every visitor, when they are there, they are viewed as a temporary resident, it must be kept pure for them, and this eye has also been taken to understand, in the second meaning, the role of the host in uh, the role of the host in the duties that the host has to keep the place that the guest is visiting pure. And so this is a khidmah of the people who are the custodians of Hanumayn Sharifin. Then when Allah SWT told Sayyidina Ibrahim Salam to proclaim and announce the Hajj, so the incident and when this happened is Sayyidina Ibrahim Salam he went and he climbed up Mount Safa and they announced that, O oh people, O oh humanity, indeed your Rabb is appointed a house of worship. So you should make hajj to it. You should make a journey to come to that house of worship. To worship in that house of worship. Then Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala took that voice of Sayyidina Ibrahim salam and it comes in a narration that that voice reached all over the world. And this is not something because of modern science you can say one thing and satellites today can carry it across the world instantaneously. Then some ulama say not only did it reach every living creature at that time, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala also carried it forth endlessly in time so that it has reached every single person. So that every single person, whenever they will go to Hajj, they actually will be considered as responding or go for Umrah in any way to go to visit Baytullah. They will be considered as responding to the call of Sayyidina Ibrahim alayhi salam. So that is a second aspect of this. Ultimately, Labaik means, Oh Allah, I am answering your call. 
and I'm present to your call. But who was it that issued the call of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala? What was the way that Allah ta'ala manifested his call to humanity and to believers to do hajj? That was through this a'lan or this proclamation of Sayyidina Ibrahim alayhi salam. Then Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala said to Sayyidina Ibrahim alayhi salam that once you make that, then they will come to you on foot. They would come on every lean mount. When they come to you on foot, that is understood. When they come to you on every lean mount, this is because the Arabs had this practice when they were preparing their mounts, those animals, whether it's a camel or a horse, it could mean camel, it could mean any animal, for a long journey, first they would trim them up, like they would prepare them for that long journey. So they would be prepared in terms of their stamina. So they would not feed them so much, they would exercise them more, so they would be more fit for a long journey. This is an ishara in Quran that people will come from far away places. Less far or near places, they will come by foot. And people will also come, Allah Ta'ala telling Ibrahim that this call and proclamation, invitation you have made for Hajj, people will respond from very distant places in which they will have to prepare their animals for such a long journey by making their animals lean. And then even more distant is the third thing that Allah Subhanahu wa Ta'ala mentions, that they will come to you from every distant mountain pass. Right? And this is also an ishara to the Miqat that Allah SWT has made multiple entry points for all the different places in the world and they will come from the far away distant places. So it means, in other words, that Allah SWT will come, that, that the people will come to Allah SWT's home from all across the globe and from all over earth. What is the reason that they will come? So they are going to be coming. <coughs> And this is it, if you remember elsewhere in the Quran, Allah SWT had mentioned that Allah SWT will incline the hearts of the people towards the Kaaba. And this is also a thing that is a global phenomenon. That Allah SWT has inclined the hearts of people all over the world towards the Kaaba. And the next thing Allah SWT mentions why they will come, so to witness the blessings that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has bestowed upon them. So what does this mean? Number one is the blessing of the Kaaba itself. Just the Kaaba and the Tajalliyat and Anwarat for Yuzat that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is sending on the Kaaba. Second, elsewhere we did last year in Quran that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala said that He is going to endow the vicinity and area and surroundings of the Kaaba with the thamarat of kulli shay, with the fruits of every single thing and the produce of every single thing that is made in this world. And you can take it in a modern manufacturing sense as well in the goods and items of everything in this world. So all of the blessings that Allah Ta'ala gives the Muslim Ummah will be revealed and manifested or they will be there on display when they go for Hajj and Umrah. Then what are they are meant to do? They are meant to do the remembrance of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to take Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala's name وَيَذْكُرَ اسْمَ اللَّهِ فِي أَيَّامٍ مَعْلُمَاتِ so that they may remember Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala's name in those specified days so to remember Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala's name this expression comes in two senses in Quran and again this is another way that uh, well, you believe it comes in three senses in Quran, and another way in which Quran can have multiple meanings simultaneously. You don't have to select one of these three meanings. All three meanings are intended, and that is part of the ijaz or the miracle of Quran. First meaning of this is literally to mention the name of Allah Subhanahu wa Taala. You need to do zikr of His Ism Azim, Ism Jalala, Allah. That's the first meaning, the literal meaning. 
Secondly, it also is a kinaya or a metaphor for salah. So to remember the name of Allah subhanahu means to offer formal salah, prayer and worship. And the third meaning of this is that generally to remember and recollect Allah subhanahu wa whether on your tongue or in your heart, whether with His name or any other way. So all of these three meanings are simultaneously intended here. So they will be in that journey and when they arrive in Kaaba doing zikr of Allah subhanahu wa name, praying salah and generally trying to remember and recollect Him at all times. These, special, these particular special days or really specified days which days are those so there are two understandings of this some commentators have understood it to mean all of the first 10 days of the hijjah because in many hadiths Sayyidina Rasulullah has mentioned the merit of these 10 days just to give you one example of the merit of these 10 days in the Sunan of Tirmidhi there's a deed narrated by Sayyidina Abdullah bin Abbas anhu, in which the Prophet said that good deeds are the most beloved to Allah subhanahu wa during the first ten days of Dhul Hijjah. So then the Sahaba Ikram asked that is jihad not better than worship during these ten days? And Sayyidina Rasulullah responded وَلَلْ جِهَادُ فِي سَبِيلِ إِلَّا رَجْلًا خَرَجَ بِنَفْسِهِ وَمَالِهِ فَلَمْ يَرْجِمْ مِنْ ذَلَكَ بِشَيْءٍ That no jihad on its own will not even be better than worship in these ten days except for that person who sets forth on jihad with his own nafs, means with his life and his mal and spending his money and property to fi sabilullah and then he doesn't return with either of the two means no shahada in jihad is better than worship in those ten days but nafsi jihad alone if a person survives that is not better than the worship in those ten days so this shows the immense virtue and merit of those ten days of Zulhijjah so basically we are now inshallah on the cusp of 30 days of Ramadan 29 or 30 days of Ramadan after that then the next most virtuous days are the ten days of Zulhijjah some ulama have said they're equal in virtue. Some ulama have said the nights of Ramadan have the greatest virtue, then the days of the first ten days of Zulhijjah, and then the days of Ramadan. Allahu Akbar. So this is a very special time. Others have taken the second view of these particular specified days, is specifically the 10th, 11th, and 12th of Zulhijjah, and these are the days on which the animals can be sacrificed depending on where a person is in the world, depending whether they're on Hajj or not, depending on what type of Hajj they're offering. They offer a different type of animal sacrifice as well, whether it's Uzhi or Damashukr. There's a lot of details of this in Islamic law, and you know, one that's a separate topic for another time where a person can read up on that, right? But it means that those particular days, and those are also special days, and they've also been mentioned in the Hadith of Nabi Karim sallallahu Either way, right, all of these days of Hajj are fulfilled with the zikr of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Whether it means worship, whether it means mentioning Allah Ta'ala's name, whether it means remembering Him, whether it's reciting the Talbiyah, whether it's making Tawab, whether it's going for Sa'i, whether it's for staying at Mina, whether it's for proceeding to Arafat, whether it's going to Muzdalifah, whether it is pelting the Jamarat, all, whether it is coming out of Ihram, making the animal sacrifice, going for Tawab, Ziyarah, all of these days are filled with the worship of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Alright. 
Then Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala mentioned that these animals, the domestic animals that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has provided them, and then one eats from them. So before the sacrifice takes place, because they can, these animals can only be slaughtered and sacrificed on those ayam and nahar means 10, 11th and 12th of the Lijjah, but before that, a person is supposed to mention the name of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala over them, and obviously at the time of sacrifice. One may sacrifice cattle, sheep, goat, camel, ox, buffalo. These type of animals are the animals that are eligible to be sacrificed. Again, in the books of Islamic law, a lot of details about the age and physical requirements and lack of defects that these animals have to have. Then Allah Subhanahu says, so eat from them, so it may eat from it and then feed it to the poor in distress. So two things mention what you're going to do about the meat of the animal. Alright? Okay. First I want to say is that, and I'm going to comment on this again later because there's a verse coming about this, but since it occurred to me right now. Why animal sacrifice? Modern anthropology will teach you that animal sacrifice is a pagan ritual. And history will also teach you that in many pagan, polytheistic, animistic religions, they used to sacrifice animals. There's a difference here. Here, this is what Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is going to be mentioning in these verses, that the reason, one of the philosophies behind the animal sacrifice is that animals are of a worldly benefit to you. You ride them, I mean, in this day and age we don't. But remember, the car was invented in the 20th century. Otherwise, for 99% of human history, animals were the primary mode of transport. So they are your mount and your steed. You also benefit from them that they... You use them to plow your fields. You also benefit from them that you drink the milk, right? All the milk that you drink and all the cartons and plastic bottles and milk packs and tetra packs in the world is all coming from these same animals. The same category of animals that I just mentioned that are the animals of slaughter. And then you also benefit from them that you eat their meat. So they have so many benefits. So the philosophy behind sacrificing the animal is that these basic needs of mine whether it's transport or agriculture or drinking milk or eating, I can sacrifice all of that for the sake of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And then when you sacrifice that for the sake of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, the niyyah, what does Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala say? So eat from them, go ahead and eat from it. So this is not like the pagan rituals where they used to slaughter the animal over the altar. For them, they wanted the blood to spill over the stone. They wouldn't eat that animal then. No, in our deen, it's not like that. You will go and eat from it. And you will also feed the poor in distress. So the animal will also be, you will still get the benefit from the animal. But you're making the niyyah that you're sacrificing the animal as a metaphor that you're willing to sacrifice your more basic worldly benefits for the sake of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Now here you should, I don't want to get into too much detail, but in, you know, in Sharia there are actually four types of animal sacrifice that take place on these days of 10th, 11th, 12th of Zulhijjah. Very simply, the first is that one that is required sacrifice for the person who offers a particular type of hajj known as hajj tamatto or hajj kiram. Then there's a second type of animal sacrifice that is offered on a, which is nafila, on a voluntary basis. Maybe a person who is doing hajj ifrad could offer that or anyone anywhere in the world could offer a voluntary extra additional animal sacrifice. In those two types of sacrifice you can eat the, the slaughterer, the person who is offering the sacrifice, can eat and may also feed the poor. However, there is a third type of sacrifice which is offered as a compensation 
for something that one missed out on Hajj, right? To compensate for offense that was committed, for some rule that was broken. That type, which is normally called dumb, right? That you cannot eat of yourself. And that has to be given entirely to the poor, and specifically those poor who are eligible at the, who don't even uh, have in nisab. Alright? In other words, for those poor who are mustahikab, zakat. Alright? So this type of sacrifice, uh, there's another type but that, that almost doesn't exist. There's a fourth sacrifice that if you make the niyyat to go for hajj and for some reason you're, and you have ihram and you're forcibly stopped from going, then that's also a type of dham and similarly in that case you cannot eat it yourself but you have to feed the poor in distress. But either way, the meat of the animal, somebody will benefit from it. Whether it's something shared between you and the poor, Right, and as you know, it is a sunnah, nabiyakum, some recommendation, that one-third for yourself, one-third for family and relatives, and one-third for the poor in distress who are below nisab. Or it all goes to the poor, but either way, it is not something that is not used. Alright. And obviously those who are not on hajj, for them they have the udhya on eid, and that is a wajib for anyone who is able, has is a sahib in nisab, who has that amount of financial ability to offer a sacrifice and again they also may eat from it and in that case again the sunnah is one third for themselves one third for the family and one third for the poor right and as we mentioned sometimes there's absolutely nothing against animal rights in this because humans are a meat eating population barring a few vegetarians and like I said the meat is used so there's no irreverent killing of animals and because so much meat is used in those days, then for many days afterward, animals are not available on the market. And for several days before, animals aren't available. So overall, the average works itself out. There is no, alhamdulillah, you can see every year, cattle and cows and sheep and goat and camel have not gone extinct. So there is nothing uh, that the secular rationalist can really legitimately raise as an objection to this practice. Another objection that people raise is, no, it would be better to give money to the poor. Everything is a separate act of worship. That's like somebody saying, instead of praying five times a day, I've calculated how much time it takes me to pray five times a day. That would be one hour a day. So instead of praying, I will work one extra hour overtime, and the money I earn from that I will give to the poor. Then we will say, no, giving to the poor is a separate thing, and this is a separate type of ibadah. You cannot cancel an ibadah for the sake of giving charity to the poor. So just like that, these animal sacrifices are an ibadah to Allah SWT. Giving to the poor is a separate thing that indeed must be done, has a lot of merit to be done, but that's not going to be done by canceling this ibadah of animal sacrifice. Then Allah SWT said that they should clean themselves up. What does this mean? Well, this means they will then exit their ihram, right? And they will bathe, they will shave or trim their hair, right? And for the men, you know, they'll be able to cut their nails, they can remove any unwanted debris from their body. All of this is mentioned here by cleaning themselves up. You should know for the men that Nabiya Karim has preferred halak, which means to shave your head entirely and go bald, but otherwise it is permissible to also trim the hair. Women obviously cannot shave their head. They can only and only trim their hair. If a person trims, for a woman she has to trim every single hair on her head by about one inch, approximately one inch. 
For a man, it's recommended that he trim every hair on his head also by one inch, but the bare minimum is that at least one quarter of his hair should be cut by one inch. If his hair is so short, whether because he cannot grow hair or maybe he just recently performed an umrah and shaved it, such that he cannot trim it by an inch because his hair itself is not an inch, then he has to go for the option of getting it shaved. Right? Okay. Then Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala said that once they do that, they should fulfill their vows, right? And fulfilling their vows means that if there was any uh, act of worship that they had promised that they would offer at that moment, this was something that some mu'minin do, that if I successfully manage to offer all of the arkan of hajj, right? Then I will, you know, pray, let's say for example, ten rakats, nafil salah. So then they can go ahead and do that also. The point was to show that you have successfully completed hajj. Now you have cleaned yourself up, you have exited Ahram, and so if anyone had made such a vow like that, and obviously people who are traveling from faraway places, sometimes the journey would take them six months, nine months, they would be concerned whether they would make it there safe and sound, so some of them would make a manna or a nazar to Allah subhanahu wa a vow like this, Allah subhanahu wa if I make it and everything goes fine, I'll do this or I'll do that, so the point is Allah subhanahu wa saying, now you can... You have completed your Hajj. And so if any such oaths were made, they can fulfill their oaths. And then, lastly, is this Tawaf, and they should perform Tawaf. This Tawaf is referring to what is known as Tawaf al And this is the last Rukan of Hajj. <coughs> that is, well, no, this is, uh, this is the third of the three Faraid, actually, a gone or more. There are three things that are first in Hajj. The first is, number one, to be in Ihram. Number two, to go to Arafat. And number three is this Tawaf al-Ziyarah. And other things are either Wajib or Sunnah Muqadda. And all of the other Tawafs, none of them are absolutely fard. Tawaf al-Ziyarah is absolutely required. And now a person, after they exit Ihram, they may perform that Tawaf al-Ziyarah. And they, you know, there is a time up to which they can perform that. Here, so the details of Hajj, uh, one can look at that in the books of Fiqh. Verse number 30, Allah subhanahu wa says, Zalik. Zalik means, so be it. In the ulama, I have mentioned in Arabic, it denotes that one subject has been terminated, and it can, the one use of this in Arabic is to indicate that one subject has been concluded, and now we transition to yet another topic. Another meaning of this in Arabic is Zalik, and so it should be done. Allah Ta'ala is decreeing and this whole process that Allah Ta'ala describes step by step as we walk through it and precisely thus should it be done this is the way that the people who go for Hajj should perform this Hajj one another thing I will mention before I continue so you hear you find here in Quran Al-Karim and in several few other ayat in Quran Allah Subhanahu mentions some legal details of Hajj then because Nabi Karim actually himself only performed Hajj once in his life, you will actually have a limited set of hadith that give you another set of details in Hajj. And then because there's so many minute details in Hajj, especially if a person makes a particular type of mistake or if a woman enters her monthly uh, cycle and maybe she's deterred from doing certain ibadat. So there's so many cases and variants that could occur to a person on that. All of those have been resolved and solved by the ulama known as the fuqaha mujtahideen, the legal scholars. And the reason I'm pointing this out is that hajj is such an ahem ibadah. It is a fard ibadah. 
And in and I mentioned to you yesterday how incredibly important a fard ibadah it is that a person only does it once in their lifetime. Even in that most important fard ibadah, even there Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has left some wus'a, some breath and scope in sharia for the fuqaha and mujtahideen to resolve the minute issues. So that is also a proof that our deen, we can only do amal on deen through Qur'an, Hadith, and when Qur'an and Hadith are not crystal clear and unanimous on something, then the third thing which is required in deen, because it's required in Hajj, is to follow the ijtihad of the rightly guided fuqaha, who have been met with the approval of the scholarly community of ulama across 12, 13, 1400 years. Right? Verse number, verses number 32, 33. So, Dalika, and so be it, and as it has been said, and so shall it be done. Then whomsoever observes, whomsoever honors with reverence the sacred and sanctified rites and rituals that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has commanded, or anything that is pertaining to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, that is good for him with respect to his Rabb, his Lord. And domestic animals are permitted to you, except, the, except those which were declared in the Quranic recitation as off-limits to you. So refrain from the indecency involving idols, and avoid talking of that which is false and lies. And remain in devotion to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala without attributing partners to Allah. For whomsoever attributes partners to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, it is as if he had fallen from the sky and a bird had snatched him. Or it is as if the wind had blown him to a far and distant place. And here again Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, Adalika means again having said it, or that if anybody does any of the above, so shall it be and so shall it come to pass. And if any honor the sanctity of the emblems and symbols and markers of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, then that is something that emanates from the piety of their hearts. There are benefits for you in them, in the cattle, in the domestic animals, for a certain up to and for and up to a certain specified time. Then thereafter, they will be delivered for sacrifice, and the place of that sacrifice is by Beit al-Atiq, which means the ancient house. All right. Here, Allah subhanahu wa has mentioned a particular thing. Hurum, you see this al-Masjid al-Haram, al-Masjid al-Haram, al-Haram al-Makki, al-Haram al-Madani, right? So, Hurma is a root word. Now, we know the word haram as in forbidden. Obviously, al-masjid al-haram does not mean the forbidden masjid. There's, there's another meaning here that there's a hurma. There's a sanctity. What's the nisbat between these two things? That the same root comes for a very important word, which means haram, which means forbidden. And the same root can even have the same word haram mean being something that is special, that is sanctified, that is sacred. And that is because Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has delineated the borders, the hudud, right? And those things that are outside those borders, that is also due to the respect of what Allah ta'ala has deemed to be holy and unholy. 
So that is also sometimes called haram, what in simple English we call forbidden and prohibited. And also something that has been given hurma. So here you have then hurmat. The hurmat means those things upon which Allah subhanahu wa bestowed blessedness, holiness, sanctimoniousness, sacredness. Alright. Now, what are those things? And you're going to see, then Allah subhanahu wa said later again, that those who uh, have honor the sha'a'ilillah, man yu'adhim sha'a'ilillah, those who honor the emblem in verse 32, those who honor the emblems and signs of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Alright. So the hurmat means that every single thing that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has commanded humanity to revere and respect. And this means everything to do with the deen and sharia. But obviously in the context of this verse, because it's immediately coming after hajj, so it can also be more understood in this case to be those things that are related to hajj. Whether it is Kaaba, whether it is the place of Mina, the place of Muzdalafa, the place of Arafah, etc. Right? Another meaning of this is that one should honor the hurmat of Hajj. One could take it, Sayyidina Abdullah bin Abbas, he took it in that way, that it means that one should abstain from the forbidden things during Hajj. And those are the things that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has forbidden us to do. And that is Rafat, Fisk, Jidal, that a person should, when they're in a state of Ihram, the things that become Haram in a person in a state of Ihram, they should not engage in relations, they should not, uh, in physical relations, they should not, engage in argument, disputation, they should not engage in any type of fisk, any type of sin. So that is another way to take this meaning of this verse. And again, this is another case that both of the meanings can simultaneously be understood. Obviously, one must stay away from those things that are haram and must also respect those things that Allah subhanahu wa has given sanctity and sacredness. Then when Allah subhanahu wa said that the domestic animals have been allowed for you, domestic animals are permitted to you, what does that mean? That until those, the, the slaughtering and consuming of those domestic animals have been permitted to you with the exception of those that have been declared to you and in Quranic recitation. So this has been mentioned, we did this last year in Surah Baqarah, Surah Maidah, Surah An'am, that there are certain types of animals, such as the corpse, such as that which Allah's name has not been taken over, etc., etc., that have been forbidden to us. Otherwise, all of these animals are permissible to eat. All of the cattle and sheep and goat and camel, etc., are permissible to eat. All right. Another meaning here is that the, to let the hujjaj know that simply speaking, that whatever animals you normally slaughter, those are the same ones that you're going to slaughter for these particular specific animal sacrifices and offerings, sacrificial offerings that you're going to offer to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. But other than that, you are not permitted to hunt and kill animals because you may know that in ihram, you're not allowed to hunt and kill animals. The only thing that they will be able to sacrifice is this animal sacrifice but after that they exit their ihram and then after they've exited ihram then they can resume the hunting and killing of other animals. Right. Then Allah SWT said here that to abstain, uh, avoid the indecency that involves idols. So what does that mean? This was that because when Sayyidina Ibrahim salam had also established a true deen on Kaaba, later mushrikeen what they would do is the way they corrupted it, they believed in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, but they also believed. So there was a particular type of polytheism that took, that was the way the 
communities after Sayyidina Ibrahim deviated from Tawheed is that they believed in Allah SWT and other gods. And when they would offer the animal sacrifice, they would offer it with the intention that we were offering the sacrifice for Allah SWT and other gods. So this ayah is condemning that practice and making sure that the practice is restored to its true Ibrahimi original, which is it is just for Allah SWT to avoid any indecency, any uh, and, and avoid the impurity that will be attained by involving oneself with idols. So much so that in their Dilbiya, they would actually say Labaik to Allah SWT and they would also say Labaik to their idols. Now the question is that why is this being mentioned here? Because there's no way the Muslims would do this. It's being mentioned here to mention a very important thing. I don't know if I can explain this to you properly. Allah SWT here is showing that while there is continuity in Amal, there is not continuity in Etikad. While there is continuity that yes, even Mushrikeen have sacrificial offerings. Even earlier communities had sacrificial offerings. And Badahir outwardly, you are doing the same thing. You are continuing that same Nusuk, that same sacrificial rite. But there is not the same Etikad. They were doing it either for their false gods or for Allah Ta'ala plus false gods. And you're going to be doing it only for Allah Subhanahu Ta'ala. So that's a very important point because again, the modern anthropologists, when they look at Islam, they say, oh look, it's a religion carrying over certain, this, this, this pre-Islamic practice. Right? Such as the people before Islam did Tawaf. Such as the people before Islam went to uh, Mina. Such as the people before Islam used to offer animal sacrifice. Such as people before Islam honored those days of Zulhijjah. Right? So no, actually that those were true practices of Sayyidina Ibrahim salam that were revealed by Allah SWT to Ibrahim. They were real deen. It wasn't the invention of the mushrikeen, but they had put some corruptions in it. And so now Allah SWT and Deen of Islam is restoring it to its original purity. So although outwardly it may seem that there's a continuity of amal, they're doing the same amal, they're not doing it with the same etikad. And this is what this ayah is saying. Alright? Avoid all the indecency that involves the idols. Then Allah Subhanahu said that avoid all talk which is falsehood and lies. Alright. Obviously that is a general teaching that must always be done. And this is also Allah Subhanahu giving Ishar and Ahram, you must stay away from this. But the real rut between this and its context is that you should avoid all the lies that the Mushrikeen said about Allah Subhanahu So again you're doing the same Amal but not with the same feeling in your heart. You're going to be doing the same amal of animal sacrifice and tawaf and etc., but not with the same lies that they used to say while doing that amal. Okay? Alright. And it comes in a date that Sayyidina Rasulullah specifically commented on this verse and said that lying here means not to do... Uh, Yes, Sayyidina Khurayim reports that Sayyidina Rasulullah once said that when he recited this exact part of the verse and then said about the last part that abstaining from falsehood and lying means uh, rendering false testimony. So what does it mean that the witness, if you render false testimony, you lie and testify against someone? And the Nisbah put in that in shirk is because they falsely 
testify to the existence of other gods. So another type of falsehood means that when we falsely testify to something that is untrue, that didn't happen, that is untrue, but we lie and we testify that it is true, or we testify that it happened, or we have false testimony, then that is a nisbat that is like doing shirk. Because just like they would falsely testify to gods that didn't exist, to truth that didn't were really true. Alright. Then Allah spawned on the next ayah described a two metaphors for the mushrikeen to whomsoever attributes partners to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala whoever does shirk. Number one metaphors as if he had fallen from the sky and a bird had snatched him up. What does that mean? So this means that if you fall from the sky you're going to die. Right? And then a bird snatches him up. So one of the mufassirun he had mentioned that what happens here is that they allow the, their false gods, their belief in those false gods to control their lives. And they spend their whole life following the belief of their false gods. And what they end up doing is they end up falling from the sky and in the day of judgment, the talons and the claws and the beaks, the, I mean, sorry, the talons, claws will be snatched up by their false beliefs in those false gods. Alright? And also the metaphor of being snatched by talons means that you will be rendered to pieces, you can be reduced to bits of flesh. The second example that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala gives is that they're blown away as if a wind had come and blown that mushrik away to a distant place. What does this mean? This means that the mushrik, if they continue on their path of idolatry, they will be far removed from hidayah. And every belief and act of shirk will put them in a place that is more and more and more distant from hidayah. Such that they may cross the point of no return, they may end up so deviant that they can never be set right again. Alright. So again, then, as we said, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala said, and such, and that is it, and so it shall become. Next then was honoring the sha'ir, the sha'ir of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So that person who honors the sha'ir, the signs of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, different views on what the signs of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala are. Sayyidina Zayd radiallahu he said that the signs of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala are number one, Safa, and Mar- in this Rahaj, number one, Safa and Marwa, number two, that animal that you're going to sacrifice is also a sign of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, that He has given you a bounty and a blessing that you're willing to sacrifice for His sake. The area of the Jamarat, where a person does rummy and pelts the stones, number, that was number three. Number four, the whole precinct of Kaaba and the whole precinct around it, the Masjid al-Haram. Number five, the plains of Arafah. And number six, the Hajar al-Aswa. Some of it, Sayyidina Umar Badanda also mentioned amongst the Sha'ir, Mina and Muzdalafa as well. Alright? And it is also be understood, because this phrase comes elsewhere in Quran al as well, that generally to honor any single thing that is associated with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So that means Kitabullah, Qur'anul Kareem, Rasulullah sallallahu the Messenger sallallahu Rijalullah, Awliyaullah, the men of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, the lovers of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, the beloveds of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, the ilm of the deen of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, anything and everything that has a nisbat with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, the ibadullah, the righteous worshippers of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, we should in our heart 
have an honor and respect and love for anything that has any relationship with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. In fact, all of our heart's honor and respect should only be for those things that are connected to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And if there's anything that has nothing to do with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala whatsoever, we may do it for some functional purpose, we may do it for some worldly need, but we should not feel any pleasure or attraction or allure for that thing, any love, honor and respect for that thing, all of that should be reserved for the sha'air Allah, for those things that are connected to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And then what did Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala say? That this is min taqwa al So very important point that this is from the taqwa of the qulub, the taqwa of the hearts. So this shows you number one, that taqwa is a spiritual feeling. Taqwa is something in your batin, because qulub is proven of qalb. Qalb is something that is in the batin. This is why our mashayikh and the ulama of Tazkiyah and Ihsan and Islah, they train a person how to work on their qalb. Because the more and more that a person does the dhikr in their qalb, the more and more they will get this taqwa qulub. It is very clear, Allah SWT mentions in Quran al-Kareem, that taqwa is a sifat of the hearts. It means also then that absence of taqwa will also be something in the heart. Yani fisk and fujur will also be something from the hearts. So we have to work and purify our kulu, purify our hearts. So the taqwa comes in there. One of the signs of that taqwa is then when the person has taqwa kulub, they will love everything that is connected to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, everything that is from Allah. They will love Rasulullah They will love the sunnah of Rasulullah They will love everything to do with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And if they don't have those feelings yet, if they have a feeling of ajnabiyya, if they have a feeling of distance or foreignness or strangeness, it means they don't have enough taqwa. They need to build up the taqwa that is in their guru. Nadal Spantel said that, they, that these things, there are benefits for you in them for a certain time. What does that mean? That this means that before the animals are designated to be slaughtered, for a sacrificial offering, you can benefit from them. In other words, if you had an animal all year round, and you thought that, okay, when I go on Hajj, because many times, in the early times, they would take their animal with them, right? Until the specified time comes to sacrifice the animal, you can benefit from the animal in terms of riding the animal, drinking the milk from the animal, using the animal for various purposes, carrying your cargo, whatever, etc. But once they have, the niyyah has been made, and you have made them muta'ayyan, and you have set forth with them as a sacrificial animal, now at that point you are not allowed to derive any benefit from them. Right. And the last thing Allah SWT mentioned is that their destination is for what? Is for Baytul Atiq. Alright, and Baytul Atiq again means that ancient house, that special, sacred, primordial house, which is the Kaaba. This is an ashara that the animals that are sacrificed during these days of Had is Ayam and Nahr, this 10, 11, 12, and the, the sacrifices that we mentioned for Hajj al-Dhamatu, Hajj al-Quran, and for them, they have to be sacrificed within the precincts of the Haram al They have to be sacrificed within the precincts of Makkah Mukarramah. It is preferable in those sacrifices that it's required to give the meat to the poor, that if there are any poor and distressed people below Nisab within the Haram, Precincts, Hudud Haram, that you should give it to them. That is preferred. Alright? But the sacrifice is required that it has to be done there. Verses 34 and 35. 
Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says that indeed we have ordained for every single ummah, in for every single religious community, a right, a set of rites and ritual. So that they would engage in the remembrance of the name of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala over the domestic animals that we gave them as provision. But also know that your Allah is one, one God. And therefore to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala alone must you submit. Then give good news to those who are humble. Those whose hearts are afraid and those whose hearts are afraid and tremble when Allah Ta'ala is mentioned. Whose hearts are filled with awe when Allah Ta'ala is remembered. And who are, steadf- who are steadfast and patiently endure whatever afflicts them. And who regularly practice and observe their salah. And who spend out of what Allah Ta'ala has provided to them. Alright. So, this word here. Mansak, sometimes you will see it through as manasak. This refers generally to the particular laws of worship, and many times it is used specifically manasak or hajj for the rites in, that take place in the hajj, and sometimes it is used specifically for the method and the laws and rules pertaining to offering an animal as a sacrifice for Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Here, when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala said we've done this for every single ummah, means that this is not something new. Previous ummahs also were given these manasik, and that's something that we mentioned, that the original deen had a continuity in it, but you had this break when people corrupted the deen in the middle. The beliefs behind those actions were corrupted in the middle. Then when Allah SWT says, give glad tidings to the humble. So this is a very important thing. What does Allah SWT say? وَبَشِّرَ الْمُخْبِتِينَ that you should give glad tidings Nabiya Kareem Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam to those who are humble in their worship to Allah Subhanahu Wa Ta'ala. And then in verse number 35, Allah Subhanahu Wa Ta'ala mentions the four qualities of humility. Allah Subhanahu Wa Ta'ala mentions the four sifat of being humble in front of Allah Subhanahu Wa Ta'ala. And we can all examine ourselves when we have that. So, Alladheena. Who are the muqbitin? They are those people. Number one, إِذَا ذُكِرَ اللَّهُ وَجِلَتْ قُلُوبُهُمْ That when Allah Taala is mentioned in front of them, their hearts tremble with the awe and reverence and fear of Allah Taala. So what does it mean? The same, same thing here. Qulub. That same taqwa qulub, wajilat qulub. Their spiritual hearts feel the power of Allah Taala. Their hearts are attached to Allah Taala. So you have that, right? They talk about in modern love poetry, right? That when you take even just the name of the beloved, the lover, oh, their face becomes pale and their expression changes, their complexion changes, right? Because that is the power, yes. That for the true and sincere lover, the Ashik Sadiq, that even just the mention of the name of their beloved is enough to move their heart, to motivate their heart. And this is the same thing. So the first aspect of this first sign is that this person has a kalbi ta'luk ma'allah. They have a heartfelt relationship with Allah subhanahu ta'ala. Then when Allah ta'ala's name is mentioned, Allah, when anything about Allah subhanahu ta'ala is mentioned, it impacts on their heart. And the second aspect of this first sign is what is the impact that they have. Not that they fall into a pale complexion, not pangs of yearning, no, would you let their hearts feel this awe and their hearts quiver and tremble out of awe and reverence for Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So it's a very special feeling that these people who have who are humble. 
So humble doesn't is not something it's not a qawl, it's not something you say. Right? And which has become very what we call murawatan, has become just a matter of outward adoption of customary words of humility. Right? No, that's not humility. Right? And many times actually when people do that, then they hit you with a big one. Sometimes they say, Ji basmiri Ajizanarai and then Lopakpar. They're going to say something huge, right? No, humility is something in the heart. It may not even be expressed. In fact, one of the early Mashaikh of the Sawaf literally said that. That to say words of humility betrays your humility. So to say over and over again, no, I'm nothing, I'm nothing, I'm nothing, I don't know anything. Actually, no. Humility is something that is felt and lived. It's not something that you must always be expressing. Yes, on occasion a person needs to express that. And many times that's not even necessary to do izhar of humility, but that's to give a real disclaimer, right? That I honestly don't have the knowledge. But a person whose takya kalamu often just keeps saying that all the time, such a repeated expression of humility is actually a betrayal of humility. Allah Akbar. Right? So Allah SWT is teaching us in Quran that humility is number one, that their hearts tremble and quiver out of awe and reverence whenever they have mention of Allah SWT. So that is why then we must make more idha we must make more zikr of Allah SWT, more mention of Allah SWT, more recollection of Allah SWT, the more and more zikr a person does, the more humble they become and Quran Akram is establishing that. Second attribute of those who are uh, humble, wasabirina alama asabahum. It means that those who are steadfast and they patiently endure alama. So mahir's arm on every inch and everything that asabahum afflicts them. It means any difficulty that comes over them, any tough time they have, they always, always meet it with sub. Sabra means they don't lose heart, they don't lose hope, they don't lose amal on deen, they don't become depressed, they don't fall into apathy, they don't say, they don't say, I don't feel like doing anything. No, they have sabr. They endure. They persevere. No matter how Allah may test them, no matter what trial and affliction He sends upon them, it doesn't make them waver in their deen, in their ibadah, in their taqwa, in their haya, in their adab, in their akhlaq. They don't waver at all. They remain firm and steadfast. Why? Out of their humility. How, what does this have to do with humility? Humility because they view themselves as the slaves of Allah SWT. That Allah SWT is finally hakiki. That I am Allah Ta'ala's plaything. He is free to do with me whatever He wants. My job is just to have some. I'm not something and someone that I can ask the question, why did this happen to me? I am nothing and I am no one. And therefore, whatever Allah Ta'ala makes happen to me, I will meet, treat, behave with summer. That's, that comes from humility. So if we get overly excited, overly worked up, overly distressed, overly depressed, it may be because we have an inflated sense of our own self-worth and we haven't humbled ourselves in front of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. The third attribute of the mukhmateen and the humble who we mentioned here in Quran, that they are the ones who regularly, they're muqeem, they have done, they're doing amal and aqeem salah. So this 
being muqim is somebody who's an iqamah means they firmly established entrenched salah in themselves and in their lives so not occasionally pray not offer their salah they are deep into their salah they are deep they are anchored themselves into their salah so it can refer number one to their regular offering because again that's related to humility it's Allah Ta'ala's command right simply speaking when the boss tells you to do something in this life you simply do it there's no question says you have to be at work, you have to be in the clinic at 9 a.m. every day you will be there at 9 a.m. every single day of the year and you will do that for years because you viewed that human as having some authority over you you viewed them as greater than you and yourself as lesser to them in the corporate scale so the person who is humble in front of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala when Allah ta'ala commands him over 700 times in Quran aqimus salah over 700 times Allah Ta'ala has made this command in Quran. That's why we say this in the basic things. Quran and Salah. Show up for your Salah. Answer to the call of the Muslim. If a person calls the CEO, calls you to a meeting. You show up to the meeting in the meeting room. You get there on time. Allah Ta'ala is calling you to a meeting. So this person is firmly established on the offering of Salah. And the second meaning is that the Salah is firmly established in them. The effect of salah is entrenched in them. The enjoyment of salah, the prevention of munkar that comes in salah, in the salat of tanha and al fashai wal munkar, that's entrenched in them. They're muqeem in that. They're muqeem in that abstinence from the vulgar and from that which has been prohibited by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And then the fourth, fourth thing, right? And all of these things are signs of the humble and all of these things are what keeps them in their humility. One thing is sometimes some of us enter a state of humility but then we exit again. So if we want to be permanent in humility we have to have these four things. And the fourth thing is what? وَمِمَّا رَزَقْنَاهُمْ يُنْفِقُونَ And then from what Allah Ta'ala says and from what we have provided them they spend from that. They spend from that. They give away. And this is referring to Nafil sadaqah. So I'm talking about zakat. It's talking about it means zakat obviously as well, but it's also sadaqah. That they give away what Allah SWT has given them. How does this do with humility? So their humility is that they, they don't view it that this is mimma, you know, mimma naksubu from what we have earned. No. They don't view this wealth that they have that this is from my earnings. They view it as mimma razaknahum. That this is what Allah SWT has sent us. That's their humility. So what I have is not what I have. What I have is what Allah Ta'ala gave me. When they realize that what I have is what Allah Ta'ala gave me, then they're happy to give it to others. And when their emotional feeling about what I have is, is what I earned, then it's difficult to give to others. So this is the relationship of the fourth thing with humility. Now we move on, verses 36 and 37. And yes, yesterday, today, a lot of animals, a lot of discussion of animal things. And we have become a very, you know, urban population. I still remember the first time I saw live a goat being slaughtered. Mon goat. So verse number, verses number 36 and 37. Here Allah SWT says that, uh, and we have made the large sacrificial animals have been made by us as emblems and symbols of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala for you, in which there is much good for you, yani for your benefit. 
So recite the name of Allah subhanahu wa over them when they are lined up standing in line and when they fall down on their sides and eat of them and eat of them and feed the resigned and the wretched. Actually, really, the re- I'll explain. Qane means feed that person who is poor but doesn't ask. That's the first category. And second, feed that person who is poor and also asks. So both of them are referring to the poor. Then Allah Taala says, Thus we have subjugated these large animals, domestic animals, to you in this way so that you may be grateful. And then know that it is neither their meat nor their blood that reaches Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. But what reaches Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is the taqwa. The taqwa that you have. It's your piety that reaches Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And we have subjugated them, these animals, these large domestic animals, to you in this way, so that you would acknowledge and proclaim the greatness of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala for the hidayah, the guidance that He has given you. And then and give glad tidings to those who do, who do good deeds, who do acts of virtue. Indeed, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala defends those who believe, and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala does not love any treacherous, faithless, ingrate, ungrateful person. Alright. So here, what is Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala talking about? Well, budna. Now, budna is large domestic animals, means the camels and cattle, according to Imam Mifarimullah ta'ala, that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala subjugated. This is a sign. What is the sign? The sign is that these animals are so large and the human is so small that if you go with a knife, this also I witnessed for the first time in my life in Gujrawala. Allah Akbar. Right? Now the human is so much smaller and he's taking a knife to a huge cow. Who should win this battle? The cow should win the battle. There's no doubt the cow weighs hundreds of pounds. But Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has subjugated these animals such that they certainly may offer a minimal level of resistance. And that same year in Gujawala, I also saw the spearing the nair of a camel. Allah Akbar. That's what being explained. I'll also explain this phenomenon. They fall down. <laughs> yes, I've witnessed it. This is how it happens. Right? So what Allah subhanahu is first saying is this is a sign from Allah subhanahu that He subjugated large animals in front of you. Right? So what would happen when the camels were slaughtered in the time of Sahaba Ikram when the time came for us they would line the camels up and then when you line the camels up you tie their legs and then you slaughter them with a spear or some other type of instrument that is like that and that is a particular way of slaughtering the camel it's a particular skill and by the deen of Islam somebody who doesn't have that skill it's highly makruh for such a person to attempt such a slaughter because it's going to harm and hurt the animal Allah SWT does not want undue pain and harm to be afflicted on the animal. But when an expert does it, it, begin, it brings an animal to a quick death. And then, when, there's, when, when they die with that nehar, then they fall to the ground. Okay? And when they fall to the ground, then it means that, okay, you skin them, and then you can eat them, and then the process starts. So this is the whole process that Allah Subhanahu was mentioning in this ayah. Then what we have told you, there are two words here, Al-Qani Mu'tar. So Al-Qani is that person, again, who does not ask for others. Who is, you can say, he's content, he has kana. And then the Muqtar is that person who is so, Muqtar is that person who is so needy that actually he does even, maybe you could even say, in some sense, that he begs. Then Allah subhanahu wa said that we have subjugated them to you, right, to make you grateful. So that you may be grateful. To thank Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, not only for all the various benefits he, because 
they're subjugated, we can put stuff on them, we can ourselves ride them, we can slaughter them for meat, we can take their milk, which otherwise every mother should only want to give to her own child, let alone to a member of another species. <laughs> right? Well, Allah subjugated them, has even subjugated their maternal instinct. Okay? So that we may do, be grateful to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. This is what our mashaykh say, that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala subjugated all of creation to you, O insan. So you insan, you would subjugate yourself to that one Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala made us malik of all of makhluk, so that we could make Allah ta'ala our malik. He is the true khalik. Right? Then Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala mentions what I also said is also a rad. And shows that in Deen of Islam, the animal sacrifice is not some pagan ritual that the anthropologists can comment on. This ayah Allah makes it clear that their meat and their blood will never ever reach Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. That it does not reach Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. What does it reach? Their meat and their blood doesn't reach Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. That has nothing to do, that's not the purpose behind the sacrifice. But what reaches Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala the taqwa that is inside of you. So it's an act of ibadah. It's an act of sacrifice. And if anything, the meat reaches you or reaches the poor. So that's not what... Whereas previous politics and religions actually believed when they sacrificed the animal that the, their God takes the meat or their God wants that blood to be spilt on their altar. Right? And this is why, by the way, you know, you should never fall into these crazy amil and amliya to they do things and they cut animals and they spray blood in places, right? This is all batal and this is all fitna. No matter if the person does it for free, no matter how outwardly, out, outwardly pious looking that person may be, any and all such magic and voodoo and rites and rituals is all batal and is all fitna, right? <coughs> okay, just to show you an, uh, one hadith which also makes it clear Sayyidina Zayd ibn Arbukan with the narrative that Sayyidina Rasulullah said and that the, the Sahaba asked the Prophet that what is this sacrifice? They asked, what's this, what's, why are we doing this? So Sayyidina Rasulullah replied that it is the practice of your father Ibrahim alayhi then the Sahaba inquired them, well, what is the reward in us for it? And Sayyidina Rasulullah said that when you do it with this taqwa, you're doing it as an act of worship. Yes, you will eat the meat yourself, but what is the reward for you? You will receive the reward of a good deed, one hasana, for every single hair on the animal's body. So it is actually an act of ibadah that brings ajr and sawab to us. All right. And... Then when Allah subhanahu says you can be grateful for Allah's guidance, what does it mean that we would never have known that this could also be a way of ibadah? We would have just gone on just killing animals just to eat. We would never known that there's a way to do that also as ibadah for Allah subhanahu We would never have been able to get that ajr unless Allah subhanahu had sent his hidayah to us in the pure and noble way to do so. Now verse 38, Inna Allah so I translated this way that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala defends those who believe and then Inna Allaha la yuhibbu kulla khawanin kafur that indeed Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala does not love every khawan is a super khayn right and that is a person who is faithless who breaks trust who does khiana to the highest level kafur is a super kafir these are mubalagha in Arabic 
means that person who is extremely denying of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is an ingrate or is highly ungrateful to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Okay. Once we did this series, but that was that was in England, we did all the ayat in which Allah Ta'ala loves Inna Allah Yuhibbu and then we did all the ayat Inna Allah La Yuhibbu. And this is another thing to study in Quran that what are those things that Allah Ta'ala what are those attributes that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has mentioned that He loves in us? And what are those attributes that Allah Ta'ala says that He can never ever love such a person? And obviously we want to remove those things. But the first part of the ayah that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala defends the believers. Now what does this mean? This is referring to, and, and, and this is coming, you know, I mean, maybe let me just read actually uh, the next few ayat as well, because it's all about, and even though we did this in detail last year, it's going to be a bit of a discussion on the concept of jihad. So let's recite verses 39 to 41, and then we can discuss this passage together. Verse 39, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has said that permission has been granted to the victims of aggression because an injustice has been done to them and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is powerful and able to help them and grant them victory verse 40 those who were evicted from their homes without any just reason except that they used to say our Rabb is Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala indeed for if Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala did not repel some people by means of one another then the monasteries, churches, synagogues, and masajid, yani mosques, where Allah subhanahu wa name is mentioned and recited, they would surely have been demolished. Allah subhanahu wa will surely defend those who defend Allah subhanahu wa Indeed, Allah subhanahu wa is all-powerful, almighty. Verse 41. Those who, when we give them authority and establish them on earth, they regularly institute and establish the prayer, they offer and give charity, they enjoin what is good and they forbid what is reprehensible, then with Allah, indeed the outcome of all affairs is up to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And even if they reject you, so did the people of Nuh al We'll stop over here. Alright? Okay. So here what is going on. So you should understand, number one, that in the beginning... Sayyidina Rasulullah sallallahu and sahaba ikram and I'll just skip 38 for a moment Sayyidina Rasulullah sallallahu and sahaba ikram were not told by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala that they should fight the oppression that the people of Makkah Makarama were doing to them in the entire Makkan first Makkan period Sayyidina Rasulullah and sahaba never ever once fought back against the persecution and oppression and even sometimes torture that some of the kuffar of the mushrikeen of Makkah Mukarramah used to do to the Sahaba Ikram. Never once did they fight back. And this was the hukum of Allah SWT. This was the revelation that Allah SWT sent. So the first thing Allah SWT is saying is not that indeed Allah SWT does defend those who believe. Allah SWT has that power. And He will ultimately do so. But He may not always initially do so. This is the way of Allah SWT. He may not divinely intervene when Sayyidina Bilal radiallahu is being tortured. He may let that process take its course, notwithstanding that he has the power to defend the believers. Okay. Now, there are two aspects to this. Now, first, 38, ayah 38 is like what we call the rabd. It's the connector. It's talking about something that has come before, but it's also leading up to the next verses. What came before? So what we were talking about earlier was Hajj, right? And all these different aspects of Hajj. 
So what happened was that once Sayyidina Rasulullah and the Sahaba, they wanted to go to Kaaba. And the Mushrikeen of Makkah prevented them. And then again they wanted to go. And they extracted these rather unfair one-sided conditions. But that Nabi agreed on in Sulah Hudaybiyah. And then eventually then the Sahaba were allowed to go. And then eventually then Sayyidina Rasulullah engaged in Fatih Makkah. So that was a process, right? So in the first instance they were turned back. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala's first thing about that. That no, indeed, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala had the power to defend the believers at that moment. But Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala wanted things to transpire in such a way. But meanwhile, when those unbelievers are oppressing the believers, so Allah Ta'ala says about them, إِنَّ اللَّهَ لَا يُحِبُّ كُلَّ kafur, That indeed Allah Subhanahu Wa Ta'ala does not love every person who is kind. So Allah Subhanahu Wa Ta'ala says, إِنَّ اللَّهَ لَا يُحِبُّ كُلَّ kafur, That Allah Subhanahu Wa Ta'ala does not love the people who are faithless, right? Who are treacherous, who break their trust, who break their treaties, which is eventually what's going to happen also. And Allah Subhanahu does not love the people who are extremely denying and disbelieving in Him. Alright. Then this transition now, this concept of Allah Ta'ala defending, then brings a larger question. That okay, this wasn't just the incident of being turned back from wanting to go to Kaaba, but also what happened in Badr, what happened in Uhud, that even if the Muslims won, but the Muslims were attacked, even if the Muslim armies won, but there were Muslims who were martyred, even if the Muslims remained safe in Madinah Manara, but still, again, the unbelievers were sending armies against them, means that the Hijra did not bring about peace. Because even after the Mu'minin left Makkah, Makkah, for the Manara, still, the Kuffar of Makkah decided to be warmongering. Alright. So here then, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, this ayah is viewed as the first permission. That now, look, when you were in Makkah Mukarramah, no permission came from Allah Subhanahu to fight back. But now that you have migrated to Medina Manora, and now they're sending armies against you, and you lived in peace amongst them, even though they oppressed you, then you peacefully migrated away from them, and you're living in peace in Medina Manora. Now they're sending their armies against you, because they don't like your way of life. They're sending their armies against you because they don't like the way you have established justice, fairness, and peace in your society of Medina Manora. So now what happens? That indeed those people who are being killed and being attacked, right? So Qatl is killed and Qital is attacked. So those who are being attacked, permission has now been granted to them. What? Permission has been granted to them to fight back. Why? Because they are being oppressed. Because a zulm is being done to them. They want to live their own life in Medina Manawra according to their own way of life. And they are being attacked for that. You can find that in other places in the world that sometimes people want to live according to the teachings of deen and Islam. And they want to live peacefully on their own and live according to their deen. And people attack them for that. People attack them for that. So now, then Allah SWT says, وَإِنَّ اللَّهَ عَلَى نَصْرِهِمْ لَقَدِيرٌ And indeed, Allah SWT, لَقَدِيرٌ is surely and certainly powerful and able نَصْرِهِمْ to help them and to grant them help and success. Okay. So when Sayyidina Rasulullah and Sahabi Kram migrated and made the Hijrah to Madinah Manawara, then there was still oppression that was taking place. 
And because not all of them migrated at once, and once Sayyidina Sussam went to Medina, where sometimes some of the Sahabu came later, some of them came bearing marks of torture. That when the Kuffar of Makkah found out that the Muslims escaped, those Muslims who were weak, who didn't have tribes or clans protecting them, right? Some of them were caught in torture and then eventually let go and then they came to Medina like that. Some of them were forcibly expelled from their homes. That okay, look, if the rest of your ummah decided to go voluntarily, we kick you out. So all of this, and even those who originally left, because Nabi Karim himself did not want to leave Makkah Makarama, so even that is being viewed as kicked out. So all of this is being referred to as Alladina Ukhriju Min Diyarihim, and those who were expelled from their homes. Baghayri Hakim, not due to any just reason. Why? Illa Anyukulu Rabbunallah. Except that the only thing that they actually did, the only reason was that they said, Our Rabb is Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Okay? So this permission then has been given to these people. Right? And Sayyidina Abu Bakr Siddiq, because he was a sahib of Marifa, when this verse was revealed, he said that now I understand that what's going to happen, the Mushrikin are going to attack us. And sure enough, then you had the battle of Badr, you had the battle of Uhud, and you had many others after that. Okay. Now, when you ask the question, right, why did Allah Subhanahu make this whole process happen? Well, because a lot of people got shahada in this process. The Mu'mineen were able to establish a society in Medina Manora. They were able to give their lives and their money for the sake of deen. And then, the Mushrikeen, their might and power was broken. Amanullah. The Mushrikeen, their might and power was broken by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And when the Mu'mineen came back and did Fatih Makkah, then you had a lot of Mushrikeen who finally gave in and accepted Islam. Because now they realized, we sent our armies one, twice, once after the other. And now the Muslims have become ghalib over us. Whereas those Mushrikeen, if the Prophet and Sahaba had engaged them militarily in Makkah Mukarramah, maybe they would have been killed in battle, they wouldn't have been able to accept Iman. Alright? And you will see that, that all of this fighting takes place outside Makkah Mukarramah. Fatih Makkah is a bloodless entry. So this is another hikmah of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So many hikmahs that the Mufasrun and Muhandisin ulama have commented on this issue. This concept that they were driven from them was only because they said Allah. So this is the same thing you find this today, right? Discriminate means discrimination on the basis of religion. This is the modern term, right? Woman is not hired to teach only because she says Allah and therefore she wears hijab, right? A man is not hired for a job because he says Allah because he has a beard. And this is happening in the Muslim world. <laughs> it happens all over the Gulf. It happens increasingly in certain organizations in Pakistan, right? So this ayah can be understood that there, there is religious discrimination. There is no just reason. They are, wor- they are worthy on merit. But they said, Rabbunallah, <laughs> that's it. And, yeah, and so, what does it mean? And you will see that, that the illiberal secular elites are so matching in their attributes and behavior as the worst people on earth were the worst people on earth in the history of humanity were the kuffar and mushrikeen of Makkah And now you have within the Muslim world certain illiberal secular elites who are adopting the same behavior. Discrimination and oppression of people simply due to their deen.
Then with the Al Sana verse forty, it's very difficult to literally translate verse forty. Right? Allah subhanahu is saying a very fascinating thing, a very important thing here, right? And that is simply speaking, that jihad has been taken place through previous communities as well. And if the even the permission of jihad had not been given to previous communities either, there would never have been a monastery, a church, a synagogue that survived. It means discrimination against deen is not something that started with deen of Islam. Christians, when they were in original Christianity, were discriminated because they were Christian. Jews who were on original Judaism were discriminated because they were Jew. Rahibs who were on original deen, they were discriminated as well. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala saying is that nothing would have lasted, whether they're monasteries, churches, synagogues, or masajid, unless this decree had been given to allow people to defend themselves against the persecution that idol worshippers, unbelievers, atheists, agnostics, illiberal seculars wage against the people of the So this is a facet of all of human history. This is what Allah subhanahu wa is saying in this passage. It also shows you, right, that the idhan for jihad is not to go and oppress others like people misrepresented. It's to defend and to allow our worship. If ever jihad is done offensively, it's not to force others to worship. The only offensive jihad is to remove injustice and establish justice. There can be no offensive jihad to establish ibadah. Defensive jihad can be even just to save our own ibadah. Alright? And so this is something that Allah is saying has happened before. So clearly it means that earlier anbiya must have been given similar revelation and similar idhan. Then what does Allah is saying? What will happen then? Right, so this is referring to the second thing that Allah subhanahu wa will uh, surely defend those who help him. That indeed Allah subhanahu wa will surely help each and every person who helps Allah subhanahu now what does that mean? Allah subhanahu is beyond needing any help. There's no help we can offer. Yansuruhu means help the deen of Allah subhanahu Anyone who is doing anything to help the deen, whether it is in the establishment, so now it's just masajid, right? And other communities, they were helping deen by establishing their places of worship, by establishing masajid, or by defending those masajid, or by establishing deen, or by defending deen, in any which way it takes place, so Allah subhanahu wa said in Quran, وَلَيَنْسُرُنَّ اللَّهُ مَيَنْسُرُهُ That Allah subhanahu will surely and indeed help each and every person who helps and assists the deen of Allah subhanahu the way of Allah subhanahu the path leading to Allah subhanahu إِنَّ اللَّهَ لَقَوِيٌّ عَزِيزٌ That indeed Allah subhanahu is all-powerful, is almighty. And then there will be these people who help the deen of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, when Allah ta'ala's nusrat comes upon them, then He will make them ghalib on earth, or at least in their territory, or even ultimately, potentially on earth, Allah ta'ala says, and the day or when, that when we settle them with authority on this earth, means they're now strong enough, that no one can attack them. They're strong enough, that they're completely defendable. So what do they do when they get that strength? They don't establish tyranny. 
They don't try to become a tyrannical superpower. What do they do if Allah SWT gives them that on earth? Number one, aqamu salah. They use that peace and justness in their society and that settledness in society to establish salah, to establish iman of Allah SWT. And to pay the zakat and to remove poverty the second they are free from the external threat. And they will enjoin every single thing that is good and they will prevent every single thing that is foul. And indeed, to Allah subhanahu belongs the ability to bring every single thing to a conclusion, the ultimate end and the ultimate result of all matters and affairs belongs to Allah SWT alone, belongs to Allah Ta'ala and His might and power alone. Alright. Now verses 42 to 48. Here Allah SWT is going to be essentially con- again consoling Nabi Akrim Wasallam and also mentioning that just like there's this continuing the theme that there was this history of oppression and persecution, there's also been a history of disbelief. There's been a history of disbelief. So verses forty two to forty eight. Allah says that even if they falsify, repudiate, reject you, Sayyidina Rasulullah sallam, well then indeed so did the people and community of Sayyidina Nur scoff and reject him and so did the communities of Ad and Thamud, Yani scoff and reject their prophets. And the people of Ibrahim also had scoffed and rejected him, the community that he was sent to. And the people and communities of Sayyidina Lut also had scoffed and rejected him, the people they were sent to. The people of Midian also scoffed and rejected the prophets who were sent to them. Sayyidina Musa was also accosted as a liar. So then Allah Subhanahu said that, what does Allah Subhanahu do? Al-Swantal says that, okay, I gave them a muhla, I gave them a reprieve and a respite. I gave all of these disbelievers a reprieve and a respite. And then, what does Al-Swantal say? And then my punishment seized them. And then once that punishment seized them, indeed, how... Mm, how intense was Allah Subhanahu putting them down? So this Nikir is Allah Subhanahu rejection of them, his censor of them, his reprimanding of them, his slamming them down. How intense was it when that punishment came? Means extremely intense. And then Allah Subhanahu says, Indeed, how many towns, villages, communities, areas, ultimately even civilizations have there been that indeed we destroyed them when they were unjust, they were wrongdoers. Right? And how did Al-Swantan do that? So those communities then, they tumble down to their foundations. Right? They, fall, they tumble down to their foundations and how many wells lie abandoned on earth where castles still stand. What does this mean? fallen down on their foundations, their roofs fall, and then the walls fall down upon them. Again, the modernists raise this question that, you know, this is not the way things fall. First the walls fall, then the roofs fall. This is exactly Allah Ta'ala's point, that it didn't fall due to any sabab 
when a building falls due to some suburb structural flaw, the walls collapse and then the roof tumbles on top of it, when it falls without suburb, due to the commandment of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, He makes the roof fall flat, hits till it, such that it falls to its foundations, and then the walls just collapse over it. So it's amazing, they actually don't realize exactly what the, Allah Ta'ala is exactly saying that. That it did fall and it, it will fall not in a way that it normally fell. Because it didn't fell due to any slip of the world. It was felled by Allah Subhanahu Wa Ta'ala's command. It was a part of the divine punishment that Allah Subhanahu Wa Ta'ala sent. And then how many wells were abandoned, deserted wells, even though there may be a castle still standing. What does it mean? It means literally, you know, wells of water means there's still sources of water there. But there is no life there. There is still a source of life there. But there is no life left. Because Allah Ta'ala again destroyed the life in that community. Right? Here is also an that sometimes Allah Ta'ala also left the building standing. Which today you can go through the ruins. Right? Of certain castles or palaces or places. Sometimes how were they destroyed? And so Allah must have destroyed their life. Whether through a plague, or whether through some other means, but left their constructed edifices standing as a sign for humanity. And people still go on tours and to see the abandoned ruins of such and such and so and so, or abandoned castles and palaces and such and such and so and so. Right? And that is also an ibra. It's a sign. Right? And it's a sign, uh, both obviously for disbelievers to see that as a sign that this is the ultimate end for disbelief, and also a sign for us. That if we fail to practice our deen properly, then our deen will also just be, you know. We will have the well, we have the water of Quran and Sunnah and all of the teachings of deen, but on top of it will just be an abandoned castle. Will just be empty ruins. Right? Then Allah that have they not traveled in the earth? Right? It means have they not traveled from the earth? So what? So fatakunu lahum kulubun yakilum. So that their kulub could understand. So again, you have another attribute of the heart, akal. And we've explained this in our talks before to you that one is the akal that lies in the mind, and one is the akal that lies in the kalb. And that is the journey ilm of deen takes to a person. The person who doesn't have ilm of deen, their akal is in their mind. That person who has ilm of deen, their akal comes into their kalb. Their hearts understand. They get a basira. And Allah is saying that one way they can do that also is by reflecting on the ayat of Allah SWT. That is how that a person gets iman. Well, Allah says in Quran that don't, don't, don't they reflect upon the signs of Allah SWT and have iman. By reflecting on the signs of Allah SWT, their hearts were supposed to get akal. It's nothing to do with mental rationality. It's the rationality of the hearts. This is the concept in Quran al-Karim. Far greater it is than the rationality of the mind. What the rationality of the hearts. So Allah SWT is trying to stimulate that. That couldn't they do that? Yaqiluna biha so that they could understand by means of their heart. Or don't they have ears by which they can hear? Then Allah says, in the Ta'mal Absar and indeed it's not their eyes that have become blind. Walakin Ta'mal Kulubul Latif Sudur but in fact it's the hearts in their breasts that have become blind. It's something we've explained before, physical sight and inner sight, the perceptive faculty of one's physical vision and the perceptive faculty of one's spiritual heart. And when a person's spiritual perception goes away, that means they're spiritually blind. Spiritually blind. And again, so we don't want to be the same way. 
that all of our deen is just in our dahir, but in our batin we're empty and blind? Or that we lose our perception of this world and the things that happen in this world? Verse numbers 47 and 48. Here Allah says, yes, okay, he is consoling the Prophet that they, though they, yani the unbelievers, they urge you to hasten the punishment and to bring it sooner, but Allah subhanahu wa never goes back on a promise that he has made and know that one day to your Rabb is like a thousand years according to your count and how many communities have we let them be have we let be even though they were doing wrong and then we punish them after that we, our punishment sees them and know indeed to Allah subhanahu is the final journey and return so here, Allah SWT is concerning, uh, consoling Sayyidina Rasulullah Wasallam. They want to hurry you with the punishment. They would say, again, remember mockingly, that uh, if the punishment has come, bring it now. And then the Prophet couldn't do that, right? And they would say, okay, this is proof that you're not a real Prophet. Because we were taunting you and mocking you that if this prescribed time, the sa'ah, the hour, the end, then you say it's near, then just bring it now. And obviously it wouldn't happen. So the disbelievers use this as an excuse to maintain their kufr. So this is the answer of Allah subhanahu wa They want you to hurry it. No. It's not going to be like that. And it's very interesting. This also shows you a feature of people. Remember I was telling you that this increasingly this illiberal, secular, progressive, anti-deen crowd, they're mapping themselves exactly, aligning themselves to the behavior of kufar. What is this? So this behavior is that, that I'm going to pose to you a question. And if you cannot give me the answer that I think is correct, I won't believe in you. So they're telling the Prophet son, there's questions. And bring the Day of Judgment now if you can. And then we'll believe. <laughs> in fact, that would be so foolish. Could it be too late to believe? And they're lucky. <laughs> and the Prophet didn't do that. It would be too late for them to believe the Day of Judgment is brought. But Nabi couldn't do that. He couldn't bring the Day of Judgment instantly. So when he couldn't give them the answer that they wanted their question, they say, we don't believe. That is the way of so many people today. Convince me. And the only way to convince me is to say what I have, my own preconceived notion of the way things should be. So that's not submission. That's not humility. That's not open-mindedness. To have a preconceived notion and only accept an answer that is based only on your preconceived notion, that's not open-mindedness. That's close-mindedness. So that's, what the, that's exactly the behavior that Kuffar were saying. Right? Then when Allah says that verily a single day with your Rabb is like a thousand years. Alright. Now elsewhere in Qur'an al-Kareem, Allah SWT has mentioned different numbers. This is also something that some atheists and modernists raise in an objection to Qur'an al-Kareem. So I want to answer that for you today. Surah Al-Hajj, Allah Ta'ala is saying, what that a day in, your, in the reckoning of your Rabb is like a thousand years according to your reckoning and counting. In Surah Ma'arij, Allah Ta'ala says that a day, fi yomin kana miqdaruhu khamsina alfasana, that it's a day, the duration of which will be 50,000 years. So you have 1,000 years and then you have 50,000 years. Okay. So what does this mean? Is it one day? Is it 50,000 years? Is it 1,000 years? So first thing you should know, that day, what is a day? First of all, that even according to science, this question is nonsensical. 
Because if you ask the scientists that if there is a place where there is no sun and there is no orbit of the earth around the sun, then how long is a day? They say there's no such thing as a day. A day means the time it takes uh, the earth to spin on its axis once in front of the sun. Right? And if you're saying there's no sun, there's no earth, not sun orbit, there's no rotation on, on its axis, there's no concept of a day. There's no such thing as a day. Then secondly, from Iman, from theology, you will understand that the day of judgment is taking place after this world. You've entered now the timeless realm because Akhira has no time. It's timeless, it's endless, it's eternal. So even in reality, there's no such thing as a day. But Allah Ta'ala has called it Yawm Al-Qiyamah because it is a stage through which a person will pass. How long will that stage last? There's no literally long because there's no linear time. So it means that how long will the person feel that stage last? So here Allah Ta'ala on one eye says it would feel to you like a thousand days. I mean, in your reckoning, in your reckoning, the way you feel a thousand years is, that's what it's going to feel. Another ayah says it will feel like it's 50,000, uh, sorry, not 1,000 days, 1,000 years. Another ayah says it's going to feel as if it's 50,000 years. Okay, then in my hadith, Sayyidina Abu Sayyid Khudri Radhazana said that Sayyidina Sulaim was asked that the day will last 50,000 years. That's going to be so long, how would we tolerate that? So Sayyidina Sulaim took a swore by the Sultan by him and who's hand lies my life to the moment that day will seem shorter than the time that he spends in Fard Salah so that hadith makes it clear that it's how long it seems not how long it is for some it will be such a terrifying day due to their certain level that it will last a thousand years for some it will be such a terrifying day because they were outright kufr it may feel like 50,000 years and for the believer, the Bhagavad it will feel, it will seem to him shorter than the time in which he performs his first salah. Right? And for people like us, the way we perform first salah, if the day is not going to be shorter than that, then it means going to be shorter than five minutes. <laughs> and I was, I, when I was thinking about this once, I remembered this concept that you have in weather. You can check this, right? In America, because it's very cold, they had, it's 30 degrees outside, but due to wind chill factor, it feels like it's 10 degrees. So what does it mean, dress like it's 10 degrees? Because as far as you are concerned, it's 10. That's not scientific. Scientifically, it's 30 degrees. But it's going to feel like it's 10. And once I checked it here also in Lahore, it's 100 degrees Fahrenheit outside, but it feels like it's 119. That must mean because of the intense heat or the sunlight, right? So this is about how it would feel like. So it's a whole range. So there's no contradiction. That for some people it will feel like few minutes. For some people that passing of that day will feel like 1,000 years. For some people it will feel like 50,000 years. There will be variations in the feeling. As far as the length of the day itself, there is no real length, measurable length, because it's not really a day. Because there is no linear time in that realm which is after this world has been folded up. Alright? Fair that in the end when Allah SWT said that indeed many were there, Right, uh, many were the communities that Allah Ta'ala had granted them that respite and reprieve, even though they were zalim, then Allah Ta'ala's punishment suddenly seized them. And then again, to Allah SWT will be, what does Allah mean by the seizing? It means that they just were continuing, and all of a sudden, one earthquake, 
all of a sudden one hurricane or tornado, right? Just instantly, suddenly wiped away. And where did they go? Allah is saying they went to Allah SWT. They will also return to Allah SWT. Okay, now verses 49 to 51. Oh my beloved messenger, sallallahu alayhi wa says, Oh my beloved messenger, sallallahu alayhi wa say, that, Oh people, I am nothing more. I am only a clear warner to you. For those who believe and do righteous deeds and acts of virtue, indeed for them there is forgiveness and a generous provision. They will have forgiveness from Allah SWT and a beautiful bounteous risk. Right? And that bounteous risk is talking about the Akhir. Ultimately talking about the Akhir. Because the Kareem risk cannot be manifested in this world. Even if you were to get the whole world and everything that it contains, even that couldn't be called the karam of Allah subhanahu Karam of Allah subhanahu means eternal life. That's his real level of being al-kareem. Eternal bounty, eternal blessing, eternal provision, eternal risk. That is the risk of kareem. And that will be for those who have iman and do acts of virtue. And those who make attempts to... Okay, those who make attempts to subdue or subvert the verses of Allah subhanahu or who deny the signs of Allah subhanahu right? And why are they doing that? Because they're trying to defeat Sayyidina Rasulullah sallam. So what will happen to them? They will be the companions of Jahim, which is another word for Jahannam. So Jahim, you could translate that perhaps as infernal. He translated just as fire, but we will translate it as infernal, the blazing infernal. It's a strong word. Right? They will be the ashab of that. Ashab means companions living therein forever. So here clear who gets forgiveness, who gets punishment. Verses fifty two onwards, right? Very important passage of Quran, verses fifty two to fifty seven. Allah says in Quran that we indeed we Allah Subhanahu never sent a messenger before you, Prophet nor a prophet, except that that Prophet faced a situation that Shaitan, when they recited the revelation Allah revealed on them, Shaitan interjected. Shaitan interjected doubts into the hearts about what was being recited. But know that Allah SWT ultimately abolishes that interjection and whispering of Shaitan, and that Allah SWT firmly establishes and confirms his signs or his verses of revelation, and indeed Allah subhanahu wa is all-knowing, all-wise. All of this was so that Allah subhanahu wa may make shaitan's interjections and whisperings a test and a trial for those who have the disease in their hearts and those whose hearts are hardened. And those who do wrong and who are wrongdoers and unjust, they are in profound discord. And it is so, and the second reason is that it is so that those who have been given knowledge and ilm those to whom knowledge has been given, they may know that this recitation is the truth from your Rabb, so that they may believe in Allah SWT, and their hearts may be humbled to Allah SWT, for indeed Allah SWT is the guide of those who believe, He guides them to a straight path. And the disbelievers, verse 55, but those who disbelieve, they will, not, they will never cease to be in doubt, about it, yani about revelation and the recited revelation until the end of time comes suddenly upon them 
or there comes to them the torment of the day on which they will have no hope. The torment and punishment of the day on which they will have no hope. And on that day, the kingdom will be for Allah alone, who will judge between them and it will judge between them. And those who believed and did acts of virtue, they will dwell thereafter in gardens of happiness and bliss. As for, as for those who disbelieved and rejected the verses of revelation and the signs of Allah, for them there will be a humiliating punishment. Okay. First thing here is that verse 52 is saying that every single Nabi and Rasul, and I've explained the difference between these two words before, every single Rasul and Nabi was such that when they recited the verses of revelation that Allah sent to them, that shaitan cast his doubt right in the hearts of the listeners. Okay. About what? About something to do with that recitation. You remember last year when we did Surah Anam, Surah number 6, verse number 112, Allah said, that indeed Allah said, and so we have made for every single prophet aduwun, an enemy. And who are they? Shayateen al insiwal jinn. They're enemies who are actually shayateen from the jinn, from humanity, and from the jinn. Yuhi ba'luhum ila ba'al. And even though the word here is wahi, right? Yuhi ba'luhum ila ba'al. That some whisper to one another, insinuate to one another, try to cast doubts and aspersions and confusions into one another. Zukhrufa <coughs> to one another uh yiftaluna and you should just leave them, right? Uh, sorry, Zukhrufa with the intention to deceive, and you can leave them and that which they invent. Alright. Here, so this part, the first part of the ayah is showing that this this happened for Nabi Akadim and here Allah is saying every single messenger so every single Rasul and Nabi has shayateen who are after him from the ins and the jinn and one of the things they do is they try to cast doubts and whispers into the hearts of the, those who are listening to the recitation so that they may doubt it so that they may question it so that they may be unsure about it and these doubts have different effects on different people but and who are those different people? So it's a test. So now Allah mentions two types of people. It's a fitna for what? Fitna number one, for those people who have a sickness in their hearts. And then number two, and those whose hearts have become hardened. So those who have a sickness in their heart are the non-practicing believers or the weak-hearted believers, right? Or who have any illness in their heart they may have lust in their heart. Then they may have doubts about something in Quran. They may have greed in their heart. They may have doubts about something in Quran. They may have arrogance in their heart. They may have doubts about something in Quran. They may have any marad in their heart. If they have marad in their kulub, they will be prey and they will fall prey to the insinuations and doubts cast by the shayateen about the Quran al-Kareem itself. So again, this ayah shows you how important it is to do tazkiyah kulub, to purify our heart from those spiritual illnesses, because as long as we have those illnesses, we'll have doubts. We could even have doubts about Quran al-Kareem. So what does this mean? Always remember that when somebody comes to you as a skeptic of Quran, 
no matter how much they try to couch their skepticism in aql, that they think it's their intellectual sophistication, knowledge, erudition, education, due to which they are questioning Qur'an, it's never the case. Recognize from this ayah that this is the person that actually it's a spiritual illness they have. It's their nafs. It's their lust. It's their love for sin. It's their indulgence in sin. It's their engagement in sin that made their heart diseased due to which they're having doubts on Qur'an. It's not due to their brilliance and genius and rational arguments. And believe me, even if they present that to you, you look in their life and you will see the sin. You will see the sin. And you will see then that they are definitely people who are, who have, who are fiqulubi So that is the first group who is prey. And the second group who is prey to the doubts that shaitan casts in their heart about the Qur'an are بَالْقَاسِيَةِ قُلُوبُهُمْ Those whose hearts have hardened. Those are unbelievers. One is the sinning believers, non-practicing believers, right? And the second is the unbelievers. Their hearts have become hard now. But rana ala rusted, crusted, hardened hearts, harder than even rocks and boulders from which water and springs can gush forth. So when their hearts are hardened to Quran, they easily for shaitan to put doubts in them, right? When you find a non-believer, you can find a non-believer professor of Qur'an, he's got complete doubts that the Qur'an is the book of Allah that the Qur'an is the word of Allah because his heart is hardened. His heart has been hardened. Alright? If then Allah says that the mean the... If the disbelievers, uh, they are in a deep disagreement, uh, in a far-removed disagreement means that they are ba'id, they are so stubborn and obstinate in their disagreement, they are too far from Hidayah. And, this is all done why? So that those who were given the ilm, that were given the ilm, right, alladhina utul ilma, those who were bestowed upon ilm, they can know that annahul haq mirabbika, they know that this is haq from your rab. Right? So again, this shows that you need ilm. The more ilm of deen you have, not on the basis of akal, the more ilm you have, akal is got from the people of akal, ilm is got from the people of ilm. The more ilm you have, the more you will know that this Qur'an is haq. The more you will know that this deen is haq. The more you will know that Sayyidina Rasulullah is nabuwa was haq. This is why we have to get ilm of our deen. And then what they will do, then they will have, uh, they will know, and they will have iman in it, and they will know that it is the truth from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Alright, and then how are their hearts described? So these people are what? These are those people whose hearts are humble to Allah Taala. These are those people whose hearts worship Allah Taala. These are those people whose hearts love Allah Taala, As opposed to having marad, right? As opposed to being hardened. So again, it's all about the kalb. It's all about the heart. To free the heart from sin. To soften the heart through zikr and ibadah. And then Allah subhanahu wa for such people, Indeed, Allah subhanahu is surely the guide of those who adopt belief. And what will He guide them to? He will guide them to Sirat al-Mustaqim. He will guide them to the straight path. The disbelievers will always be in doubt about it until the day of judgment. They will remain in that doubt. It means there's nothing you can do to remove their doubt 
until they remove their kufr, they will not be able to remove their doubt. Okay. Until the punishment comes on suddenly, they will move until the day of judgment, or until the punishment comes to them, because when they see the punishment, then they will realize that Allah Ta'ala was true. Okay. And then, Al-Mulku Yawm'idhin Lillah. And then the dominion and power on that day will belong to Allah Subhanahu Wa Ta'ala only. This is the important day of judgment. Allah Ta'ala will be the sovereign. Maybe in this world, another ishara, maybe in this world, Allah Subhanahu Wa Ta'ala will give temporary, temporal, worldly sovereignty to an unbeliever, an unbeliever power. But on that day of judgment, and forever thereafter, all sovereignty, all rule, all kingship, all kingdom, all dominion will belong to Allah Subhanahu and Allah Ta'ala alone. Yahkumu Bainahum. And then He will decide and judge and decree His justice between all of humanity. Bainahum is first between all of the disbelievers, then between the disbelievers and the believers, between everyone. Again, they will be in gardens of bliss and everlasting bliss, bliss and bounty. And those who disbelieve and who deny and reject. And here again, ayat is another example of in Quran, you have multiple meanings. Deny the verse of the revelation and deny the signs of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. They deny all of that. Then they will have an adab that is muheen that humiliates them. So the notion is simply, and you could say it like that in English, either be humble or you will be humiliated. That's what Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is saying in this passage. Either be humble, humbled in front of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, humbled by His command, humbled to do His worship and to obey Him, humbled by fear of Him and to stay away from sin, either be humbled or you will be humiliated. There's no other choice. So given that that's the choice, who would want to be humiliated? Hmm? Better to humble oneself to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Now verses number 58 to 16. Here Allah says that indeed for those who migrated in the path of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, we will give them, those who migrated in the path of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and then either they were martyred or they died naturally, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will provide them with an excellent provision and indeed Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala He is the best of providers. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will definitely admit them into a place in which they will be pleased and happy and content for indeed Allah subhanahu is all knowing and he is all forbearing and again dhalik and so it shall be and so it will come to pass and so it will certainly happen and then Allah subhanahu will surely uh, help the one who is oppressed The one who is oppressed after he retaliates in proportion and to the extent that he was injured and oppressed. To such a person, Allah SWT will surely help them. But in the but indeed Allah SWT is certainly the all-pardoning one and the all-forgiving one. So here what Allah SWT is talking about first is the barakah of hijrah. That hijrah has to be done for deen. Originally this ayah is referring to the hijrah of Sahaba Ikram when they were Mahajir, they left Makkah to Madinu Manara. But it refers to anyone who migrates Fisabilillah. So here then, like we also have explained to you, that there's a moon, right? No ayah is exclusively limited to his particular context. So even today, if anybody migrates for the sake of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, 
and then either thumma qutilu, either they're made shaheed due to that migration, or matu, or simply they die because of that migration, uh, die after having made that migration, then indeed Allah subhanahu will give them la yarzuqannahum allahu rizqan hasana Allah subhanahu will give them a noble, virtuous, excellent risk when Allah lahu khairul raziqeen indeed Allah subhanahu is the best of givers of risk so this risk is referring to a reward that they will get in the akhirah a reward they will get in the jannah and that's what Allah said Allah will admit them to that place where they will always be happy what does this mean here? Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala was addressing the emotional feeling. Because another meaning of this is they're a refugee. Emotionally, they're not happy about leaving Makkah Mukarama. Emotionally, they're not happy about leaving their homes. Emotionally, they're not happy about that. But Allah ta'ala is saying, okay, you may not be radi. You, they're radi with the degree of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, but their heart isn't happy, right? So Allah ta'ala is saying, you will be admitted into Jannah and live such a life in which you will always be razi. That first Allah is all-knowing. He knows every single thing. He knows what you're feeling. He knows what's being done to you. He's halim, he's forbearing, he's withholding his punishment on those unbelievers and letting them expel you from your homes. But that part of the reason of that is because he wanted to give you that tremendous reward you would get for the hijrah. So that's also mercy of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So this is true for every aspect of our life. That if ever we face a difficulty or trial, but then after that we turn to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, so maybe then the reason Allah ta'ala sent us that difficulty was that so He could give us that reward and that qurb that we got because we turned, when we turn to Him because of that difficulty. So again, and so it shall pass. Then here Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says that in verse number 60 now, that Allah subhanahu wa Okay, this has to do with the amount that you are allowed to retaliate in our deen. So somebody who is afflicted with the injustice is allowed to defend themselves and retaliate to, the ex- to that extent and not to exceed in any way. And if they do, then Allah Ta'ala will certainly help them. So this initially again means that, okay, the kuffar of Makkah sent armies to Medina Manora. Now, O Mu'mineen, you can muster your army and go to Makkah Makarama. Right? You can kick them out of the homes that they kicked you out of. Right? You can reclaim back. But you can't go beyond that and do any zulm on them. And the second, some ulama mufassir say there's an ishara here. Because then what does Allah SWT say? Inna Allah la afuwan ghafoor. But Allah SWT indeed is all pardoning, all forgiving. So what does that mean? Right? That means that there's a suggestion that it might be better than instead of retaliating, not in the case of Fatah Makkah, but in the broader lesson here, that instead of retaliating, it might be better to forgive. So here, this is what Allah SWT said in Quran Al-Kareem, in Surah number, Surah Shura, Surah 40, verse number 43. That the recompense for a wrong is a wrong that is similar to that. Right? However, But that person who has suffered, who is patient and endures that wrong, endures it without retaliating, that's the sabara. And then, And then on top of that, pardons that person, 
that indeed this is from the most greatest of things to do, the most resolute matters. So here actually the deen prefers that whenever possible to pardon. So when to know? When should a person make use of that entitlement, right? To return the wrong with the wrong that is like to it. And when should a person instead do sabr and then pardon it? So one way the ulama have mentioned this is that if that evil is not quelled, if you need to put that evil back in the ground, if, if you don't retaliate, that evil will repeat its evil, then you have to retaliate to put it away. But if it was a one-time thing, you know, literally like something, and then went back, right? And then it won't come back again, then in that case it is better to endure it and then to forgive, right? So when the unbelievers sent their armies against Medina Manawara, and it was clear now, coming over and over and over again, so in that case Sayyidina Rasulullah did Amal on the first option, which is now we will have to go and repel that. But once Nabi was in Fatimah, Makkah, and now their power was, that evil was finished, and there's no chance that they're going to come, so what did we announce? He announced amnesty and forgiveness for all. So everybody has to look at their own particular situation. Right? And it also means, not just look at your own situation, if that person will do evil to you again, or there's a chance they may not do it to you, but they will be a repeat offender, they will do the evil to somebody else then that means some step measure has to be taken to quell and suppress that evil. Lest you get harmed again or lest somebody else get harmed again. But if that person just hurt you once and now they're never going to do it again, and they can't hurt anybody else again, then you may endure, you may still, right? Because that permission is still there. But now the higher course of action is to endure and to forgive that person. Right? Okay. Verses number 61 to 66. Here the Allah SWT is saying that indeed Allah SWT makes uh, the night to enter the day and the day to enter the night and Allah SWT is all hearing, all seeing that is because Allah SWT in, Allah SWT in truth and in reality Yes, that because Allah SWT is the truth and the reality, and whatever they are calling upon, invoking, praying to, is false and mere vanity, and Allah SWT is all high, most exalted, and most great. Do you not see that Allah SWT sent down rain, water from the sky, and by that the land becomes fertile and green? For indeed Allah SWT is all kind, most kind, and most aware. And to Him, to Allah SWT, belongs all that is in the heavens and all that is on the earth, and Allah SWT is all independent. And he has ever praised. Allah SWT is Al-Ghaniyul Hamid. Allah SWT is independent of any need and want. And he is worthy of all praise. Right. Verse 65. Don't you see that Allah SWT has subjugated and subjected every six, everything that is on the earth to you. And even the ships that sail the sea do so by his command and his decree. And he holds, and Allah subhanahu holds, and he prevents the sky from collapsing on the earth, except with his permission. Surely Allah subhanahu is truly kind and merciful to humanity. It is indeed Allah subhanahu the one who gives life to you, and then makes you die, and then revives you, but humans are indeed ungrateful. 
moment. Here, very simple. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is just mentioning what we have said, that all of creation is subjugated to Him, so we should, all of creation has been given to us, so we could subjugate ourselves to Him, and it's Allah and Allah ta'ala alone is al-haq and is the truth. Okay? And when Allah ta'ala ends this passage by saying that man is truly ungrateful, it means that either man denies the first thing that Allah ta'ala gave him life, or he denies that Allah ta'ala is going to give him death, or he denies that Allah ta'ala will give him life again, and those who deny all three, they are extremely grateful. And that's what the atheist does. He denies that Allah ta'ala gave him life in the first place. He denies that Allah ta'ala will give him death. He accepts that he will die, but he or she denies that Allah ta'ala will give him death. And they deny that there will be life after death. And so this is viewed as being the most ungrateful thing. This concept that Allah Ta'ala is keeping the sky, right? So again, people say that, you know, there's no pillars that are holding up the sky. Yes. But the notion of the sky collapsing is again that when Allah Ta'ala will fold up this earth, well, one way that that, that process could start is just remove the atmosphere. Remove the atmosphere, expose everybody on earth to space. You know what happens when, when the atmosphere is what contains the oxygen on this planet. If you were to remove the entire atmosphere and open up the surface of planet Earth without any atmospheric protection to outer space, there would be no oxygen, everybody would die of asphyxiation. That could be what it means. So there's no, you know, there's plenty of space within science to understand all these things that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has said. Right? Okay, verses number 67. Onwards, Okay, then for every single ummah we have made, Mansak, we had mentioned this before, that Mansak is plural, Manasik is uh, their rites and rituals and their, law, their laws and rules of worship. So the disbelievers should never dispute with you, Nabi, in these matters. Rather, what they should do is they should call upon Allah SWT, Wadu ila Rabbika. Call upon your Rabb, إِنَّكَ لَا أَلَّهُ لَمْ مُسْتَقِيمُ So Allah Ta'ala is telling Nabi Akram Sallallahu that when they dispute with you, just make dua to your Rabb, because know that indeed you, Nabi Akram Sallallahu Alaihi that you are on the firmly stay straight and right guidance, because that is the guidance that has been revealed by Allah Subhanahu Wa Ta'ala. When if they continue to fight and argue and dispute and argue with you, that Allah Subhanahu knows best what you do. Okay. So, what was happening was that here, who is now? This is now shifting. There's another group being addressed here, and this is the ethnic kitab. All right, not the mushrikeen. The ethnic kitab are being addressed. That they keep disputing with Sayyidina Rasulullah Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. And one of the things they disputed with the Prophet about was that you. Uh, it's amazing because there's mention of Sayyidina Rasulullah in their scriptures, right? That there will be the last prophet, the final prophet, and some of his alamat. But there is no mention of the manasik of the ummah in their scriptures. In other words, there's no mention of the particular laws of Islamic worship in the scriptures of the Jews and Christians. So they used this, even though they knew well that he himself is mentioned in their books. But they said that your manasik, you're the way you worship this, this particular method of salah, that's not in our scriptures. This particular method and rites of hajj, that's not in our scriptures. Right? And so that's how they were arguing. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala said that, look, just make dua to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, don't worry. 
right? You are on the Hudam Mustaqim, you are on the completely straight and right path. And that if they argue with you further, right, and they should never have been disputing with you with these matters in the first place, but if they argue with you further, then what should you say? So this is a lesson to us as well. That when somebody who is insolent and stubborn and unrelenting argues, we should simply say, Allahu a'lam bima ta'manu. That Allah Ta'ala knows best about what it is that you're doing. So don't worry about what, what you know about Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. You should reflect upon what Allah Ta'ala knows about you. That's what Allah Ta'ala is saying. Right? So a person says, oh, you know, can we know this? Or do we really know that? Or can I know this? Look, Allah Ta'ala knows what you're doing. Be more worried about Allah Ta'ala's knowledge about you. Don't be so worried about what your knowledge is about what's going to happen on the Day of Judgment or what's this going to be or what does this really mean. Allah Ta'ala knows what you really meant when you said that. Allah Ta'ala knows what you really meant whenever you did that sin, whenever you said those wrong words, whenever you felt those wrong feelings. That is that the knowledge that Allah Ta'ala has of you should be enough to make you, to change you and to, to motivate you. Then again Allahu Yahkumu Bayrakum that Allah Ta'ala will decide amongst you on the day of judgment concerning all of those things in which they dispute with you. Allah Ta'ala do you, do you not know that Allah SWT knows each and every single thing that is in the heavens, the firmaments, and the earth? Inna dhalika fi kitab And all of this is in the kitab. Dhalika Allah yusir And this is easy for Allah SWT. Now what does it mean that it's in the kitab? Not in the book, not Quran Karim. It's in the book, it's in the lawhul mahfuz. It's in Allah Ta'ala's known knowledge. Everything that is happening is already inscribed in the known knowledge of Allah SWT. Every single thing in the universe. And they worship other than Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, whether it's idols, gods, things, passions, feelings, ideologies, min dunillah, they worship things that are other than Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And they're worshipping things about which Allah ta'ala has not revealed, has not come any sultan, any proof, warrant, or authority. And they have no real ilm concerning it. They don't have any real knowledge concerning these false idols or false gods or petty things that they worship. And indeed those who are wrongdoers and unjust pressures, there is no helper that can come to them. When our clear verses are recited to them, okay. you will see and detect the displeasure on the faces of the disbelievers. You will be able to see and detect on their faces the dislike and displeasure they feel when the verses of Allah Taala's Quran are recited to them. In fact, they could almost, it feels like they could almost attack those who are reciting our verses to them. So, say to them, my beloved Messenger, son, should I inform you of something that is even worse than this, that is even more intense than this, the fire of Jahannam. And Allah Ta'ala has promised it for those who disbelieve. Indeed, it is a terrible abode, a terrible place to dwell. Okay. Now, this means that, what does it mean? That they're so incensed when Qur'an al-Karim is recited that it shows on their faces. Again, what did I tell you? Hmm? The illiberal, secular, progressive Muslim. When they see something on deen, they curl their nose, they wrinkle their eye. Hmm? Sometimes somebody says, oh, this isn't Quran, they get upset. Why are you even quoting Quran? That's what their look means. That why are you even quoting Quran to me? Yes, they show that same displeasure on their face. Or they see something of deen. Hmm? They're out shopping. 
in their most fancy store and a woman who wears niqab who is as rich as them but she's wearing a niqab they curl their nose at her they show the displeasure on their face so whose sunnah is this? To show displeasure on your face and for your expression to sour about something pertaining to the deen and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. This is the alat of the unbelievers. So it's very dangerous. It's very dangerous when we see that same behavior pattern coming from people who were born as Muslim, who are supposed to be Muslim. Right? So may Allah ta'ala give them hinayah, may Allah ta'ala protect us and keep us in his ifaza from falling into such things. Again, I'm not applying this ayah to them because this ayah is about disbelievers they are going to go to Jahannam. I'm not saying these non-practicing believers will go to Jahannam in this sense. But I'm saying that we have to be careful. That's why the early Muslims, you know, nothing they used to do. Like I said, go through those ayahs in which what does Allah Ta'ala love, what does He not love. The Muslims who knew they had 100% Iman, still they would look in Quran and see what are the alamat of the munafiqeen. What are the signs of the hypocrite? What is their behavior that is described in Quran and Hadith so that we can know how not to behave? They were worried about that. Even though munafiq means somebody who disbelieves in their heart and just pretends to believe. So these weren't pretend believers, they were real believers. But they didn't want to resemble the behavior of munafiqin. So that's why then we should be worried if we ever see in any believer behavior that resembles the behavior that is described in Quran of the unbelievers. Verses uh, 73-74 This is this famous uh, of Allah Ta'ala coining the example about a gnat or a fly A fly Alright, here verse 73 Allah Subhanahu Ta'ala says O oh people, an example and parable is set forth for you in the Quran, so listen to it What is that? That all of those whom you pray instead, pray to instead of Allah Subhanahu Ta'ala all of them together combined, their, all their combined efforts, they could not even be able to create a fly. Because obviously, they're all idols, they're all stone, they're all inanimate objects. They don't even have a drop of power. They don't even have an atom of power on their own. Okay. And if a fly should snatch anything from them, they would not be able to recover it. So if somebody put a nice flower in front of their idol, and a fly came and took one petal away, the idol can even not get back one petal from the flower that somebody had dropped on it. Right? Okay. And so what does Allah say? Famous uh, oft-recited sentence from Qur'an al-Karim, that indeed the talib, the one who is seeking and invoking and praying to those false gods, such a human being is weak, and well, the matloob and that idol that being is prayed to, that is also weak. What does it mean? That the idol you're praying to is so weak, it can't even do anything. All of them combined couldn't do anything. Nor can they prevent anything. So it means that you will also be so weak if you continue to pray to such an idol. When in the akhirah? You will not be able to do anything. You will not be able to earn any reward from yourself on that day. And nor on that day judgment will you be able to stave off anything that is going to be done unto you. So, And this has shown then that we are supposed to be a talib of Allah subhanahu Yes, every mu'min is a talib. It's in Quran. 
every mu'min is the talib means seeker of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and our matloob can only be Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala the matloob is Allah meaning we seek Allah we yearn for Allah the being and object of our seeking and yearning is and will always be Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala now verses number 75 onwards Okay, at the end Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala said, end uh, verse number 74, Inna Allah aziz and indeed Allah ta'ala is all-powerful, almighty. So once and for all, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala made it clear that all weakness lies there and all of the might and the power lies with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Verse 75, indeed Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala selects messengers from amongst angels and from amongst humanity. For indeed Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is all-hearing and all-seeing. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala knows what is and again, literally in front of them, what is behind them, but Allah Ta'ala knows what came before them and what is to come after them. And all affairs are, all affairs and matters will be returned to Allah Subhanahu Ta'ala. Then Allah Ta'ala addressed the believers, Oh, you believe, you should bow to Sajda, you should serve, you worship your Rabb, and do good, do acts of virtue, so that you may be happy. And strive for the cause, strive and struggle in the path of Allah Subhanahu Ta'ala. In a just struggle in the way that Allah Ta'ala deserves, in a way it is befitting that you should struggle for the sake of Allah Subhanahu Ta'ala. Allah Ta'ala has chosen you without imposing any hardship and constriction on you in the deen. And this is the deen that is the way of your forefather, ancestor, Sayyidina Ibrahim alayhi salam. It is Allah Subhanahu Ta'ala who named you Muslims before and herein, that the Messenger may be a witness to you, and that you, Prophet may become a witness, you become a witness to the rest of humanity. So establish salah and pay the dhaqah and hold fast to Allah subhanahu cleave to the path of Allah subhanahu who is your patron and protector. Indeed, how excellent and wonderful and noble a protector Allah subhanahu is and how excellent a supporter. Alright, this is the end of Surah Al-Hajj. What does it mean? First, Allah subhanahu selects messengers from uh, the angels and from humanity. So messengers from angels, obviously Saint Jabal messengers from heaven means the Anbiya and Mursaleen. So this is the point, this is the choice of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Nobody has the right to question. This is what the unbelievers question. Why were you about the Prophet? Why were you selected to be the Prophet? And the Jews in particular, as we did many times last year when we were doing Surah Baqarah, and why was a person from the descendants of Sayyidina Ismail al-Islam selected as opposed to what they wanted a person from the descendants of Sayyidina Ishaq al-Islam. And Allah Ta'ala is all hearing, all seeing. Allah Ta'ala means Allah Ta'ala knows best who can fulfill, which is a very difficult thing to do. You know, people today think, oh, it must have been so easy to have been a prophet. You heard from Allah Subhanahu directly. No, the most difficult thing actually in humanity is to be a prophet. The most difficult thing is to be a prophet. So Allah Ta'ala knew who to select and who to appoint and who to adorn with that noble task. Allah Ta'ala knows everything about the past, present and future and everything will return to Allah Subh'anaHu Wa Ta'ala. Here then come again the mention of the three positions in Salah, right? To Ruku, uh, sorry, yeah, Ruku and Sajda and Ibadah, right? So Allah Ta'ala means here that why is Ibadah coming separately from Rukun says the Wa'budu Rabbukum. So it means in addition to Salah, there are other ways of doing Ibadah, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And you have to do all of those ways and acts of worship and acts of devotion, right? And then you have to do Fa'alul Khair, which is different from Amal al Salihat. Fa'alul Khair means that you have to carry out 
You have to carry out good deeds that Allah contemplates so that you may become successful. Right? So again, here I did not recite the word of sajda, so it's not actually an ayah of sajda. It's not an ayah that is going to require us or you to make sajda. Okay. وَجَاهِدُوا فِي اللَّهِ حَقَّ الْجِهَادِ This is a very intense uh, command of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala that we have to make mujahida as is Allah Ta'ala's right, as befits Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, as we should truly make mujahida. The mujahida means to strive for Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, whether that is to strive with our bodies, that is jihad, whether it's to strive with our mind, that is ijtihad, whether that is to strive with our hearts and souls, that is mujahida to nafs. We have to give the utmost effort and exertion to every single aspect of deen and every sphere of deen. And then Allah SWT says, Who is the Baqam that Allah Ta'ala has selected and chosen you? Another very often quoted words of Quran. And Allah Ta'ala has not had any hardship. Now this is an amazing thing. That the modernists will quote this ayah to you. And what is the suggestion they're making? They may not say it in so many words, but they suggest that Allah Ta'ala has not made anything hard in deen. means that you can do whatever is easy. You don't need to do any work and effort. That's what they mean. But now look at Allah Ta'ala, Allah Ta'ala's wisdom. To make sure that nobody in history and nobody in the world could ever take that meaning from this sentence that nobody could take the meaning from that sentence that Allah Ta'ala doesn't want you to work hard what did Allah Ta'ala say right before it وَجَاهُدُوا فِي اللَّهِ حَقَّ جِهَادِ you have to understand the Quran in light of Quran at least they could have scrolled one line above right it means that anybody who is quoting this, you should be very wary of people who quote Quran to you without even knowing. You should ask them that, okay, can you recite the line before that to me? And the recite after. I just want to understand the verse you quoted to me in its context. Just recite one ayah before and one ayah after. And they'll be quiet. <laughs> they'll be quiet. When you pluck this sentence out of its context and you suggest that this sentence, Allah Ta'ala said that Allah Ta'ala has not created any hardship for you in being. When you suggest to somebody that means that it's okay, you don't have to work hard, you don't have to try, you don't have to make effort, yet that person is doing tahrif fil deen. That person is changing deen. That person is changing the meaning of Qur'an al-Kareem. Right? So, these two things have to be understood together. So, wujahidu fil lahi jihadi means you have to work really hard for deen. You have to make every maximal possible effort and exertion for deen. And when you do that effort and exertion, there will be nothing that in the deen is too difficult for you to acquire. That's what this means. Right? Don't your parents and beta Right? You work hard, you strive, and if you do it, haqqa, haqqa jihadi, as much as Allah Ta'ala, it befits His Majesty. Can you imagine how much hard work that is? Right? Hmm? When you do that, 
then you will find that there is no Allah Ta'ala's place, nothing beyond your reach and being. That's what it means. I will tell you, people quote this in Arabic wrongly. It's not even that people are just quoting the tarjuma there. They will recite this Arabic to you. There are whole schools of thought predicated on this. And people don't know and say, Oh, the very akal of kebab, kera, the Quran sebab, kera. Hmm? Don't think just because somebody recites Arabic to you, even Quran Arabic to you, that the Quran sebab, kera, no? Sometimes they're actually completely twisting Quran when they're reciting Quran to you. And this eye is one of the best examples of that. Yes, there is nothing difficult when you work for it. And that's true in Deen, that's also true in this world. Next, Millata Abikum Ibrahim. So, Milla, Milla. The way of Sayyidina Ibrahim al Islam is being called a Milla, a civilizational, cultural, lifestyle perspective, which is to be Hanif, to inherently, deeply believe in Allah SWT. That's Millat Ibrahim. The real crux, I mean, what Millat Ibrahim is could be a whole talk, right? But Millat Ibrahim, the crux of it is to inherently, deeply believe in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Not something that is difficult. Not something that is difficult. He has not burdened any soul beyond the responsibility. So you have to strive. Now, we would say, you know, so the second way that people spend this is, but no, I find it difficult. What do you mean? I find that effort. I find waking up for Fajr difficult. So waking up for Fajr, fine, I can accept that. That's the striving that Allah wants me to do. And you're telling me that it's not difficult. Okay, there must be something wrong then. There must be something wrong. There must be some sin that we're doing. We must be breaking deen. Always remember, when you break deen, you're not going to be able to follow deen. Right? It's very difficult to drink from a glass that is broken. How easy is it, is it to drink from a glass that is not broken? And how difficult is it to drink from a glass that is broken? So if somebody has a broken glass and says it's difficult to drink from glasses, what are you talking about? Allah Ta'ala commands me to drink from a glass and you're saying that that's easy. I'm saying, yeah, it's easy if you don't have a broken glass. So what did we do? We break our iman when we sin. When we sin, we break our iman. With that broken iman, we will find that mujahidah, that difficult to do. We find it difficult to do. So then to mend that iman, we have to do tawbah. We have to make tawbah to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. We have to adopt taqwa. And then after tawbah when we strive, remember what Allah ta'ala said, man tawbah. First make tawbah, then take iman, then do amal. The reason for that is that when you make the striving after making Tawbah, when you make the Mujahada after Tawbah, the Tawbah fixed and mended your Iman, and now you will be able to do that Mujahada, and the Mujahada that you're supposed to do when you're able to do it, will bring everything of the Deen within your reach. But if you don't make Tawbah of the sin, and you persist in the sin, then you won't be able to make that mujahidah. And the thing that Allah Ta'ala is saying is not difficult and not far out of your reach. You will, your experience will be is that it's out of your reach. And Tawbah itself, this is the beauty of the system, that Tawbah itself Allah Ta'ala always put it in reach. Yes, Taqwa can lie out of your reach. 
because we sin. But no matter how much a person sins, no matter how much their sins weaken their iman, Toba remains in the reach. Allah Akbar. That's the real tafsir of this ayah that Allah Ta'ala has not put any haraj in deen. Because he's made deen a system that the first step will catapult you into everything. And the first step will never ever be out of your reach. And that first step is Toba. So we make dua that Allah Subhanahu the last part uh, has to be mentioned as well. Who is Samakum? Yes, this is where. Who is Allah Ta'ala gave you the name Muslimin. What is Allah Ta'ala saying? That Allah Ta'ala is the one who called you the people of submission. You have to submit. Allah Ta'ala gave you this name. You have to completely submit to Him. This is who you are. This is who your Allah Ta'ala labels you, describes you, expects you, wants you to be. Min Qablu, the Rasulullah gave this name to you from way before Wafi Hada and also in this Quran. Means this name, this Ummah was referred to, the last Ummah was referred to in previous scriptures that they will be the Muslimin. They will be the ones of absolute submission to the will and authority of Allah. That's what that Ummah will be. Okay, and then the last part is لِيَكُونَ الرَّسُولُ شَهِيدًا عَلَيْكُمْ so that Nabi Karim Sassam can be a witness over you. Now this part, right, is supposed to have a very strong emotional effect on the person, right? That look, whether or not I am a Muslim, whether or not I submit, whether or not I make that mujahada, I strive for Allah subhanahu wa jihadihi, who is going to be the one who's going to witness that, who's going to be observing over that, Sayyidina Rasulullah sallallahu is going to be the witness over me on the Day of Judgment. Right? Sayyidina Rasulullah is going to see my hisab being taken on the Day of Judgment. Sayyidina Rasulullah will know how much I submitted and how much majahda I made or not. Okay? And if a person follows the deen, then they actually mean what the kunu shuhada al nas means, and that's who you, the whole ummah, is supposed to be shaheed on humanity. That's our role. And we're supposed to be shaheed on humanity. What does it mean? That our life according to deen is what was supposed to be the testimony on humanity. And if humanity says in the day of judgment, these people didn't even live according to deen. There was no, what do you mean, there, was not, there, there wasn't any Islam in 2012. Those guys, that's not, that wasn't Islam, that was something else, right? We were supposed to be so purely on the deen, that our very presence on earth, according to deen, our life of deen, our life on deen, was a witnessing, a witness over humanity. So you can read this, and you may become worthy enough, through this process of deen, to be witnessing. So how to do that? How to do that? That you should establish salah. Same basics, basic command Allah repeats over and over again. And you have to regularly pay the zakat. And you have to hold fast to Allah subhanahu means hold fast to Allah subhanahu In your heart you should love Allah subhanahu 
In your life, you should always be thinking about Allah subhanahu wa Make Allah subhanahu wa the be-all and end-all of your life. That's what this means. Waqtasamu billah. Make Allah subhanahu wa the be-all and end-all of your life. That covers everything now. Salah and zakah, they're two amal. And then make Allah the be-all and all of your life. And if you wanted some encouragement to do so, if you wanted some motivation to do so, so then know that who are mawlaqum. Allah subhanahu is your mawla. Allah subhanahu is your protecting friend, your benefactor, your benevolent friend, your guardian, your caretaker. فَنِعْمَ mawla wa نِعْمَ nasir. And what a wonderful and excellent mawla is Allah. And what a wonderful and beautiful helper. Nasir is Allah subhanahu ta'ala. The best mawla, the best nasir, the best benefactor, the best friend, the best helper is Allah subhanahu ta'ala. So given that Allah subhanahu ta'ala is the best, waqtasimu billah, then you should make that best Allah subhanahu ta'ala the be all and end all of your life. And in the next surah that's coming, after this in sequence in Quran, obviously we won't do it today, Surah Al-Mu'minun. And in that, at the very start, then Allah SWT Al-Mu'minun. And then Allah will explain who are those believers, who are those people who have made Allah Ta'ala the be-all and end-all of their life. Right? So inshallah Ta'ala we will get to that surah. Either tomorrow or Sunday. I actually originally tell me, Chum, you'll understand what I mean when you come tomorrow. Right? Tomorrow, inshallah, is the first of Ramadan, in all likelihood. Uh, we had originally announced, but I don't think the men received this announcement, but I had originally announced through some of the women that we were going to on the first of Ramadan to Surah Nur. Every now and then when there are these very particular special surahs, you remember last year, Surah Yusuf, we did a whole day on that. Surah Kaf, we did a whole day on that. So we were planning to do a whole day on Surah Nur. But that was expecting that I would actually have finished <laughs> Surah Mu'min on today, so I'm a little bit behind what my schedule was supposed to be. Uh, so I don't know actually how much the women have been told. So rather than invite you to invite your friends, especially to come tomorrow, why don't you invite them especially to come tomorrow and Sunday? Yeah, so you may have received, yeah, but the same people who sent you an SMS once can send it to you twice, right? So I'm going to think about, no one will know until you come tomorrow. What am I going to do tomorrow? Surah Nur or Surah Mu'minah, right? But given that Saturday, Sunday is the weekend, right? And even those who work on Saturdays when Ramadan starts, people get off early. And don't think Surah Nur is just for women to study because there are certain particular ahkam related to hijab there. It's something that men and women should both study. So now we're counting on all of you to also be inviters to Quran. And your friends and your family and the friends of your family and the family of your friends and your classmates and your old classmates and your long-lost distant relatives and classmates. We want you to invite all of them for both tomorrow and Sunday. And on, obviously, on one of those days we will do Surah Mu'minun, and one of those days we will do Surah Nur, and we'll probably do some other things in those two days. Alright? Uh, inshallah.
turn back to it again. Ya Allah, we ask that you accept our du'as. Accept all of the du'as that all of us have in our heart that are true to you and only for you. Ya Allah, Ya Rabbi Kareem. And we make du'a for all of our family and friends, all of our colleagues and neighbors, all of our elders and juniors, all of our teachers and students, all of those who have departed and who are yet alive, all of us in this ummah, that Ya Rabbi Kareem, that we grant each and every one of us a successful Ramadan. Ya Allah, soften the hardness in the hearts. Remove the doubts cast by shaitan. Let each and everyone sear the haq of Quran, the haq of deen islam the haq of Nabi Kareem sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. Ya Allah, manifest your haq in this month. Drown the batil in this month. Ya Allah, make your hidayah arm in this month. Ya Rabbi Kareem, continue to show that you are hadi by guiding the least of us, by guiding the unworthiest of us, by guiding the most sinful of us, Ya Allah, Ya Rabbi Kareem, and those of us who have made Tawbah before, and who are making Tawbah again, Ya Allah, let us be true to this Tawbah, protect us from those who want to derail us, protect us from those who want to poison us, protect us from those who want to distract us, protect us from the fitna of our own nafs, Ya Allah, Ya Rabbi Kareem, grant us istiqamat on our deen, Ya Allah, Ya Alhamdulillah, Rahimin, Rabbana Tukamal Minna in Naka Anta Samuel Alim, Utumbu Alina in Naka Anta Tuabu Rahim, Usallahu Ta'ala, Allah Habibi, his Sayyidna Muhammad, Wala Alihi Masahi Ajmain, Birahmatika, Alhamar Rahimin, Amen.